note, for maximum picture quality, it may be necessary to adjust the tracking control on your VCR. This is a bit of a monologue, actually. This might be a bit too long. You can tell me off if you think it's boring and long. Destruction looms large in Japanese media, quite understandably. And boring. In the period... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Go again. <laughs> No, it's fine. That made me laugh. Destruction looms large in Japanese media, understandably. And in Akira, the whole movie revolves around a series of destructions that irrevocably change the characters' lives. But to understand why Akira looms so bright in pop culture is not to focus upon destruction, but, but creation. Akira was, for all intents and purposes, the first anime to ever be shown to a Western audience. And what they saw in theatres and on VHS in the 80s was pure, unadulterated Japanese animation in its most beautiful, violent, mind-blowing and complicated and emotional and unflinching style. It's really not hyperbole to say that Akira revolutionised animation in the West. But, you know, we're just Adjust Your Tracking, a podcast where we're on an adventure <laughs> to watch a century cinema decade by decade, year by year. I am one half of your host, Liam, and with me is... Hello, I'm Oliver Jones. Hello. Hello. I took a big breath in that. Can you take that out of the edit? It made it sound funny to me. This is, apparently this is going in. <laughs> What's that Coal Chamber song that starts off with that? Um, Do you uh, Oh, what is that called? Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, is Coal it Loco? Chamber. Loco. Yeah, Loco. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Loco. <laughs> <laughs> Coal Chamber? What have happened to Coal Chamber? Are they still existing? Oh, they disbanded no. in 2017. No, oh, but okay. the the other guy's got Des Des something or other. He's got a band. I forgot Des what they're called. Devil Devil Far Driver. Farah Des Farfara. Des. Oh, he looks old. <laughs> uh, speaking <laughs> of old, I, I know we don't talk about this person anymore. But have you seen Marilyn Manson recently? <laughs> I saw you. Did. <laughs> looks like Nanny McPhee or something. <laughs> Gothy Nanny McPhee. Yeah. Yeah, well, good because he's a horrible yeah. person. 100%. A horrible, horrible person. And he can be happily cancelled. <laughs> and just now having a look at personal life section for the singer Cold Chamber. No, it doesn't seem to be anything. <laughs> so we can, we can mention him still. <laughs> That's the I first thing you okay. have to do when you ever look up someone. Scroll down on Wikipedia to personal life section just to check. Just to check he what was, they're like. He, if right? I, he did loads of like anti-Trump videos and stuff like that did around he? the time. Yeah, he he's very kind of in on that kind of thing back when yeah. Trump was being elected and stuff like that. No way, I wouldn't expect that from Cole Chamber. Yeah. Do you remember the song they the cover of the Peter Gabriel song they did with Ozzy? Yeah, shock the monkey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you gotta shock the monkey. <laughs> God, if, I reckon if they'd done Akira, kind of. Ten years later, it would have been full of new metal. Well, do you remember when they did the um, the the Western version of Street Fighter Two, the movie? I and do not remember that. Yeah, so so you had like the J- Japanese version probably had more yeah. traditional music. The English version had like Corn, um, Alice in Chains. Uh, who else was on it? Um, who's that Australian? Silver Chair. 
KMDMF oh right, or whatever. Yeah. KMFDM, Smoking yes. Sukaz with Logic. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Black Slash Note, Silver Chair, Alice in Chains, Dem Bones. <laughs> that is, I love that song. But it doesn't, it doesn't need to be in a Street Fighter movie. I can't believe they redubbed it with metal. Yeah, Corn Blind I, is in it. Blind. I always remember, like, at the very end, it's kind of got Ryu's, like, walking down the road. Like, you know, kind of like at the end of the game when you complete Ryu and he's just, like, walking off into hey. the sunset. It has sure. that, and he's kind of got his like sack over his shoulder and stuff. And then this truck comes driving behind them, and you hear going meep 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 meep, and driving it is M Bison. <laughs> Ryu turns around, and I think he goes to do his hurricane kick or whatever, and then he just goes, "Are you ready?" <laughs> no way. We used to watch that a lot. I remember that. My 12-year-old me was bopping around my living room. <laughs> did they ever do a sequel where you fought Truck Bison? They they did like a sequel series. But I think, I, if I remember, I, I'm sure I watched some of it yours and the animation was like appalling. Yeah. And then they did a remember, Street Fighter Alpha film as well. They did Alpha, yeah. I remember Alpha. I don't remember that one, it being good. That, or one, was a, that one was better, I think. Not, I mean, the Street Fighter 2 animated movie was actually really good, I think. If I remember. I mean, it had a really... I mean, a lot of... We'll, t- we'll get to this later on when we talk more about Akira, but had, like, ridiculous, like, nude scene of Chun-Li, which is, like, why is, like... It's not a rape scene, but it, it almost is, where Vega attacks her. Oh, it basically is a rape scene. Yeah, it and it's like, yeah. it's like, this is not... This is not, yeah. It's not needed. But this is not required. Like, when you're 12, you don't really think much of it. Like, oh, boobs. But, like, when you get a bit older, you're like, come on, come on. It's needlessly, like, kind of um, traumatic and disturbing for yeah. what is effectively a kid's thing. Like, yeah. But you don't think of that when you're younger. You just think that's happening. You don't kind of question that. I remember we tried to make our own Street Fighter films. You remember when we had you lying on the floor as M. Bison or whatever? Yes. And I panned the camera backwards and it made you look like you were flying backwards as opposed to like... <laughs> yes, I remember that really well. <laughs> My backward a... psycho crusher. Yeah. Because we all played two characters each, and I remember like my two characters, one had glasses on, the other person didn't have glasses on, and I kept yeah, forgetting. And we were really clever because we had scenes where your two characters were talking to the same person, <laughs> yes. to each other, and you kept forgetting to put your glasses on and off, and in between takes, like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. And then I'd, because it was largely improvised as well, I'd get confused who I was playing, and I'd like, <laughs> I'd get really aggressive because I was the enemy and like friend and you'd be like no 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 you're playing Ken now or whatever it was like, I'd be like oh okay uh, like yeah let's go beat him up I remember Rob had to be Vega because I had my sister made an Aladdin costume for me because uh, I think we had like a Disney day at school and we all dressed up as a Disney character or something okay. and so Rob wore my Aladdin costume and pretended to be Vega <laughs> good, good stuff Good times. Good times. I don't remember Disney Day at school. What was Disney I Day? I don't know if it was Disney Day, but it's it could gone. have been just a fancy dress thing and I just happened to dress up as Aladdin. But It could have been just a Friday and you just came in dressed as Aladdin. <laughs> just came as Aladdin. <laughs> wearing a, I mean, if you think about it, it's a little white boy wearing a fez and stuff like that. It's, it's a, little, a little bit problematic now, but you know. <laughs> Well, to be honest, as long as you weren't blacking yourself up. I, I don't think I was. I'll have to check photos, but I don't think I was. That would have looked really bad. Jeez. Plead the fifth. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think we got off on a bit of a tangent right at the start. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been watching about... anything recently? Um, yeah, well, actually, while doing research for this film, like watching some like um, YouTube essays, I accidentally Ooh. watched a film on YouTube. Okay. And it's called Rock and Rule. Have you ever heard of this? No, not at all. So it's from 1983, and it's like a, a Canadian animated musical sci-fi fantasy kind of film. Okay. So if if you kind of think heavy metal or whatever, it's like yeah. that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's set in the future where humans have like died, but animals have become anthropomorphic. An- I can't pronounce it. Anthropomorphic. And I mean, if you watch the film, they don't really look it, but they're meant to be like dogs and some of the characters are are mice and stuff like that, which you can kind of tell them a bit more or rats or whatever. And um, a lot of the voices are voiced by people in like Cheap Trick or Debbie Harry's one of the voices, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, members of the main character actually looks like Debbie Harry, doesn't he? Yeah, she, yeah. And it was such a bizarre odd film basically um it came around about the same time as heavy metal and stuff like that in fact the the animation company of this film were asked by the people who are making heavy metal to make a segment for heavy metal but they went no because we're going to do our our own feature film yeah and um apparently the film was kind of i wouldn't say improvised but it was kind of literally just made up as they went along and yeah, kind of if they had plot holes they'd have to go back and animate extra scenes to kind of pop in and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's like a notorious film that the actual before the film even came out, I think, the actual main the original negative or whatever got completely burnt, it got destroyed. And so wow. the versions that are around of like a hodgepodge of different versions they had that they had to like cobble together. And it was okay. uh, I think it was funded by United Artists and yeah. Back in like the early eighties, I think United Artists were bought by MGM, and MGM like right. butchered the film to fuck. And okay. then when they put it out, they kind of just buried it pretty much, and the film just kind of like died. And so much so that apparently, if you sent a blank cassette tape to the production company, they'd mail you back no a copy way. of the film. Cool. And um, but yeah, the, just the general plot of the film is um, you've kind of got this like aging rock star called mock and he's basically if you look at him he looks a bit like mick jagger and i think they wanted mick jagger to play him yeah i the voice. see it mick jaggery and he um like a, and it, he's he's meant to be a dog or a mouse i can't yeah, tell which. a dog kind of thing i don't he's know he's kind a of bit, a dog he's definitely a, like yeah he's definitely like animal he's got yeah. like a muzzle and stuff they've all kind of got little little kind of like button noses and stuff like that yeah yeah but um so he plays like this aging rock star who plays a. Sh- he's. I think the basically his main gripe is that he's the villain, is that people didn't like his last album and his like last gig or whatever at the. Um, what's that big venue in New York? Uh, Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I think it was like a massive flop, and basically he wants to get his revenge on the on the world by. Uh, bringing to life this demon from hell and the only way to get this demon from hell is to get this person with the perfect voice that has to sing these these particular notes or song this song and it like brings the devil to life this monster to life and so it just so happens that this girl in a rock band has the perfect voice so they kidnap her and uh yeah and then the, the her rock band have to kind of go and save her 
or reluctantly um, go and say over. It sounds quite it, good. Actually. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of like a, a mis mishmash of kind of like heavy metal, but also like a bit of a goof. Tro- they kind of look a bit goof troopy and stuff. They like that. They do look a little goof troopy, yeah. And um, but it's really of... weird just just looking at it up. Like they had different voice actors for like the um speaking roles and the singing yeah, roles. Yeah. So like Debbie Harry doesn't actually; she just does the singing and. And both Lou Reed and Iggy Pop do the singing for Mock. So yeah. it's not even one person. That's really weird. But going and down if, the list, like, Maurice LaMarche is in it and the Catherine yeah, yeah. O'Hara's in it, which is really weird. But, um, like, if you look at, like, it cost $8 million to make. It, like, yeah. it made $30,000. Like, but if you look at the, the design, like, if you look at the design work of, like, the, just, like, the backgrounds, even, the animation's fantastic. Sure. And like it does look like really good. Yeah. Watching Akira, they've all got flying cars and stuff, and you can all feel this sense. Like we'll talk again about it with Akira, but have you ever heard of the uh, artist Mobius, the, the yes, French have, artist? Yeah. yeah. You can tell that they're all influenced by this guy, kind of like this hodgepodge of kind of like even Star Wars to an extent was as well, like mm. this hodgepodge of like kick bashing these things together to make these like flying vehicles and stuff like that. And yeah, just it just looks fantastic, and it just what I love about it is that it, it doesn't look like Disney or anything. It looks yes, like its own. It looks like, like it's different. Yeah, and I was it was yeah. just such a like I'm not going to say the film's amazing, but it's no, it's but it's an artifact. It's a but it's really it's, it's really cool in one way. I mean, it's yeah. got like a weird kind of. Um, like you know, characters have nipples and things like that. Like, because you know they're trying to make it a bit adult and a bit edgy and stuff sure. like that. So it's just like a bit okay. <laughs> but like, um, did you ever see a film called Cool World, the Ralph Batchke film? <laughs> I haven't. It's, have I seen Cool World? I know it. I'm not sure if I've actually watched it. I might not like, have watched it. it like, an, that's another film where like the budget was like stripped from under them as they were like yeah. filming it and stuff like that. So like, there's meant to be a, like a nightclub scene where hmm. you see like loads of punters and stuff like that in the nightclub but um what they did in the end was they couldn't film any of that so as um kim bassinger's character is kind of singing they just animate characters around the edge of the screen just dancing around it's really bizarre and they kind of do a similar thing in this where you just kind of hear the audience as opposed to like actually seeing them and stuff like that because that's just ridiculously more expensive to animate those characters like but there isn't. There is actually a nightclub scene in this where they're trying to look for the main girl. They're trying to find her and stuff. And um, it's actually really well animated. And there's actually quite a few uh, punters. But when there's like gigs and stuff, you don't really see like any crowd and stuff like that. And there's also like one of the um, henchmen for the villains. Like there's three brothers, and one of them throughout the film is watching like a kids show that's all about being good. And like he's asked, like they're a bit simple or whatever, and he's asking mocking again. You know, are we good? And you know, questioning what they do and stuff like that. And at the end, Mock like kills one of the brothers, and then <laughs> one of the henchmen then kills Mock <laughs> at the end. Spoilers <laughs> for a nearly forty-year-old film. But, um, but like, it, it's kind of cool because all the stuff you're saying is is really a um, key to how animation was treated in the eighties. Oh yeah, and like, we'll get to why Akira happened in Japan, but like the treatment of like. American animation was never treated with any respect in... Sorry, animation was never treated with any respect well, in America. And it was always subject to these cuts, these kind of slashes, these, like, like um, 
throwaway releases and stuff like that. It was yeah. I mean, it was either for kids or no one else. I mean, like you know, they, yeah. when they did Lord of the Rings, they had to cut so many corners yeah. with that that there's this, like really awkward Xerox kind of photocopied live action footage and it's trying to yeah, yeah, mimic yeah. animation. It just Try looks terrible and stuff like that and it's Bashka's um, project project again wasn't it like to try and get that and they they promised him a sequel but he never got it and so they he weirdly wraps up Lord of the Rings at the midpoint it's, uh, <laughs> after Helm's Deep it's like and then they rode off and then they to... won <laughs> yeah <laughs> really weird really weird little thing that that um, Lord of the Rings film is like it's a uh, it's it, it's it's not a complete classic to me, but it is really interesting. Like, well, Bashki had a, quite a bit of success with Fritz the Cat. That actually did really well, yeah, I think. But then it, all of his films following that. I think Lord of the Rings did okay, but like all the ones following that kind of um, kind of like lost more and more and more money and stuff like that. And some of his films were a bit questionable in terms of taste and stuff like that, especially with black characters and stuff like that. Well, it's he's bit, an incredibly questionable guy as well. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. So um, I think it like those those things started to clash as well in his yeah. like life really, because <laughs> Cool World was the last thing he made until he made a short film. Like um, Cool World was the last thing they let him do basically. But like, but yeah, that, that's that's like a a podcast in itself, Cool World, because the that, the production on that was insane. Like um, Kim Bassinger basically wanted to have a film to take to kids in hospital to show them and stuff like that, which is like not the film that. What? <laughs> Bashki wants to make this really kind of adult film noir. Like he wants to make the adult version of Roger Rabbit, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he did. You know, yeah. They just wanted another Roger Rabbit, and um, and it's insane that you'd hire Bashki to do that. Oh yeah, like, yeah. It's insane that you'd think he would do that, but whatever. <laughs> but anyway, Rock and Roll. I, I actually really recommend. It's on YouTube, free to watch. It sounds uh, fun. And uh, I think outside of America, it's called Ring of Power. That's cool, though. That's something different. How about you? You watched anything? Yeah, so um, I've been watching quite a bit, but I've got a couple of new releases I watched that I might as well talk about. So um, I uh, I watched Cry Macho by Mr. Clint Eastwood. Ooh. Like, uh, it's... I can't believe he's, what, 92? That's, that's Is he 92 like, now? What, he's something like that. He's definitely in his 90s. It's definitely... I don't want to age him too much. Let's quickly look up how old Clint Eastwood is. I wouldn't be surprised. He is um, 91. Okay, sorry. 80 by a year. (laughs) His mom didn't die that long ago, if I remember. He was still taking the Oscars and stuff. What's in his genes? (laughs) (laughs) um, Clint Eastwood, I think no matter what I think of him, no matter what I think of his politics, and no matter what I think of him as a filmmaker, I'm... Any time a new Clint Eastwood film comes out, it's an event for me, honestly. Like really? I think he makes he makes everything he makes is uniquely him. Um mm. in a way that I don't think any any other filmmaker gets close to. And again, that's not a mark on its quality of a film, but it's they're just so uniquely him. And you've got stuff like Unforgiven is a fucking masterpiece. Like it's it really is a fucking masterpiece. Um I I kinda like the mule. Mystic River is quite good. Million Dollar Baby, that's a fucking weird film. <laughs> I didn't like it. Um, Richard Remember, Jewell, I thought, was awesome. Like, I really the Changeling. Did. Like, the Changeling, I did not like that film. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw it at the cinema, but I couldn't tell you anything about it now. If I It's tried. about a fucking serial killer that is... It's so weird. That fucking film is so weird. But it's like, about but, a kid that's like... 
mistaken for being another kid isn't it or something like that yeah it's a really complicated story about like basically this kid comes back to this mother who's missing and she's like this isn't my son but the kid's been told by the police to just pretend that you are so they can write off this like missing case but like clint doesn't really want to go out this is the most anti-police clint ever is you know in his films (laughs) and he doesn't but he doesn't really go after them hard enough i think really um so when you finish the film it's a bit like i don't really know what happened you know i i'm confused of why was the kid why was the kid but saying she he was her son like what the fuck was going on like and in the middle of it is the fact that the kid disappears because of serial killer which never really gets resolved in the film it does but it's just again it's a bit weird it's like a side story speaking Um, of serial killers apparently they've found out who the zodiac killer is now today apparently so yeah i don't know (laughs) i haven't seen that in the news but um, Cry Macho, uh, it's okay. Again, it's okay. Um, I kind of enjoyed watching it. Again, he's 90 fucking one and he's directed this. It's kind of like watching it going, I can't believe a 91-year-old man is starring <laughs> in a film. <laughs> like, that's got a romance plot in the middle of it as well, which is always oh, insane for Clint. Like, um, It's fine. It is, it's fine. It, it, it's just a bit... It's, it's just a bit sappy i guess really it's a very soft film for clint it's very much like a nice little soft film and with clint in the center of it i kind of enjoyed watching it i wouldn't really recommend it if that's if that makes sense (laughs) hard to kind of say but i'm just i would i would like to see him get up for an oscar for it um yeah i think he could maybe if it came out a little later he could have got best actor for it Maybe, but he's—it's not like his performance is good. I just mean in literal Oscar terms, in the way that they like to look at actors and they like to give awards. I actually, yeah. that would fit that pan really. Um, and God, I think the Oscars would like to give a ninety-one-year-old Clint an Oscar. I think <laughs> they would really like to do that. But it, does it deserve it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, no one's had a career like that ever, surely. No, no, like no. It's just. I mean, I know that. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Mary Poppins. What's his name? Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke. He's still he's still working. He's, still, and he's like yeah. ninety. He's like ninety seven or something. <laughs> Found out he married a forty year old. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> fair enough. Fair yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but um, he's still going. Um, no, it's insane. But, but, I, I like. A lot of respect for Clint. Just that that career is insanity. Like it really is. I mean, like when you talk about you know, like okay, St- Spielberg has had like three kind of different paths in his career. Like Clint Eastwood's had about seven. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like he had his eighties tough guy thing. Then he did Unforgiven, where he became like the kind of decided. Okay, I'm old now. I'm going to lean into this, and then he started. The insane doing, like, thing about Unforgiven is that it's a filmmaker's last film. Like that's what that's about. <laughs> I know. Like it's it's that about a guy who's had a whole career doing one last ride off into the sunset, making one last thing, and it's a fuck. It's a masterpiece. It's a fucking masterpiece. So that was in '92. <laughs> like, and he's just released one this year. It's insanity. Well, was Gene Hackman in that as well? He was, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gene Freeman, Hackman's Gene Hackman, like yeah. '92 now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's insane. Like for me, Gene Hackman. I think because he stopped 
performing anything. He's always been Royal Tenenbaum age, so he's always been like right seventy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but I th- I keep forgetting he's like he's probably like ninety two, ninety odd now. Well, like so Richard nice. Harris is in Unforgiven. Like um, obviously Quite he's good. no longer around. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's insane that for, like yeah. Uh, he's just had such an interesting career to me and I love them I love his weird little crime films he was making in like the kind of 2000s I think they're really fun I, I kind of would like more people to make little weird crime movies again because I miss them <laughs> like not that mid-budget kind of role I think he was good at doing that yeah um, and again it doesn't mean the film's a masterpiece I just I it's quite like comfort food I will sit down and watch blood work as like just fucking comfort really um, and I just missed that kind of that kind of stuff really and I think Clint still does that like I think that's what he's I think his films fill that role for me even when he's knocking like knocking at the door those kind of prestige Oscar films they don't do much for me like Invictus doesn't do anything for me but Richard Jewell kind of worked for me which is really at its heart just a low budget crime thing really right um, and The Mule's the same The Mule's just a low budget crime film really and that it works for me. Has he got anything else lined up now, or no? He hasn't got anything lined up now. A nice sit down and a cup of tea is what he's got. Lined up. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't they do like his his family have got like a uh, like a reality show, haven't they? Have they? Yeah, Scott Eastwood, like the Os- him. Like like the East, like the Osbournes. There's like a show that follows the the uh, the Eastwoods. Pretty sure. I didn't know that. It's like you know, I think there's even a show that follows the the Wahlberg brothers about their Wahlburgers. Yeah, there is. There is a Wahlburger for there is. <laughs> He's got eight kids. At least eight is what it says here. So they're not sure At if there least. might be more. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Legend, living legend, Clint. Even if you don't necessarily agree with him all the time that's i guess that's my kind of takeaway for him another person that he actually you shouldn't agree with <laughs> is the other film i watched this week oh, okay. i watched the card counter by paul schrader who uh paul schrader he has got a been second... like he's been like on a car crash of just i don't know it's, it's, it's weird my favourite thing about the card counter is that on its release, the studio told Paul Schrader to get off Facebook for a few weeks to not make any headlines. <laughs> and, and he um, he went Give to Facebook to chance. tell everyone this. <laughs> like, <laughs> what a fucking weirdo. Fucking weirdo Paul Schrader is. And his, his Facebook posts are just a thing of legends, frankly. Um, but um, the card counter, pretty good. It's a good film. <laughs> like, yeah, again, who's in that then? It is Oscar Isaacs, and it's so us Isaac. I always give him an S on the end, like he's um, uh, what's his name? Hello to Jason Isaacs. Oh, Isaacs, <laughs> yeah. Um, Isaac, yeah, and uh, it's really nice to see him in an adult film again. Frankly, um, I think that might be the best thing about it that he's actually just you know doing some acting in a film. <laughs> um, but uh, it's really good. It, it's it's not perfect, um, but it's a. It's one of those things that's like, this is an adult film, you know, like this is just an adult film about adult problems and things. And these are the type of films when I was like, you know, 12, 
when you when you kind of started learning what that that proper films exist that you would see and be like oh that film over there that's an adult film it's not it's for people film. like me <laughs> yeah like, and and this is what that feels like watching it it feels like one of those films that was like it's not marketed to to anyone but just grown-ups and it's about everything bad and, and paul schrader and everything like and it's it's about crime and and guiltiness and and like and indecency and justice and blah 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 blah. but it's it's good it's really it's good and uh and um um william defoe brilliant in it as again and uh tiffany haddish i think really really good i think tiffany haddish is really 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 good in it um almost worth watching it for her so well, it's nice I, that these done. films are still being made with like fairly like big actors as well i guess yeah like, yeah you know. yeah I guess you know a guy like Oscar Isaac gets given the um, gets given the opportunity to work with um, Paul Schrader. You just take it, don't you? Because like, mm. what was the one he did before? Was it First Reformed? First Reformed, yeah, which I loved. That's a good film. Yeah, yeah. He's you know um, I haven't seen all I haven't seen all his films. I've, I haven't seen I've never seen Mishima, which is always the one everyone goes on about. Right? Was that his first directed one after when he started directing? Because obviously I he was a writer so. for like Taxi Driver and stuff like. But um, an American Gigolo, did he direct that? Maybe, or did he just write it? I don't know. But anyway, Paul Trader, watch him on follow him on Facebook and <laughs> 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 see the car crash that exists. But I enjoyed both of them, like I did. Well, it's weird Good that films. Oscar Isaac is going to be Solid Snake. Like he's the person who I'd never. I just can't picture him as Solid Snake. It's such a. I didn't actually know that. Odd casting choice. Anyone at Solid Snake's an odd asking choice. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right, really. I mean, well, apart from obviously Kurt Russell. Well, Kurt Russell, Kurt or Russell. I don't know, Keith, uh, Keith the Sutherland, maybe. I don't know. I mean, he voices him in the latest game, doesn't he? Oh, uh, I just meant because he was based on Kurt Russell. Oh yeah, well yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because of um, Escape in New York, Escape yeah. from New York, Escape in New York. But. Um, yeah, it's going to be a weird film. I don't know how you'd translate that into a feature film. I don't. I don't it's hard to care. Um, yeah, that, that's also <laughs> because the games are so like such a complete bit of media. It's hard for just to be like, well, okay, you're going to make a film of this. Okay, like what? What more are you going to bring to this than the games do? Like, what's apart from like making a boatload of money? What more can you do with? like that kind of franchise by making it a film the whole like success of it is the mix of like filmic and like interactive gaming that's been the whole success of the whole series the success of those games is Hideo Kojima and if you yeah it's, it's he's it's like he's an auteur in video games isn't he really yeah and to try and give get someone else to make that just feels wrong to me like I think weird. the guy who did I think Kong Skull Island or whatever he's doing the film oh not him whatever and, his um, name is again yeah and um I don't know just like why wouldn't you get Hideo Kojima to do it I don't know it just seems weird probably because I mean, he refuses to do it maybe yeah maybe that's a good point maybe another reputedly problematic guy to work for as well oh really <laughs> just I think he's just um Singly minded, I think, is what I've heard about. Yeah, him, really. basically, so. what I say goes kind of. Mm. Yeah, works people to the absolute bone because that's how he thinks people should be. You know, that's how he works, kind of thing. Like, I think, I think that kind of stuff. So, uh, what are we talking about today, then, Liam? Okay, we're going 
all the way to Neo Tokyo to talk about 1988's Japanese animated feature film, Akira. It's funny how you you know it's called Neo Tokyo. Yeah. So the film that I watched, Rock and Roll. I don't know if I mentioned it, but um, uh, New York is now Nuke York because obviously it's been nuked because everyone's mutants now, so it's now Nuke York. <laughs> I like that. That's yeah, a good one. Nuke York. Okay, look, I wrote this one down for the synopsis, so I'm not going off the back of my brain. <laughs> Because I was like, I won't get this right. <laughs> but Akira, there, it starts with an event that blows up Tokyo that leads to World War Three, And then you got years later in 2019, the far future of 2019, the streets of near Tokyo are like filled with violent protests and bike gangs. And there's one member, Tetsuo, Tetsuo! who wrecks his bike after a huge chase with a rival gang. And in that crash, Tetsuo starts beginning developing like telekinetic powers. Telekinetic. Threatens like telekinetic powers <laughs> that threatens the entire like world. Um, it threatens the complex, the city, the people, his own friends, and they try and keep those powers at bay. But it, it breaks out, and he be- starts becoming obsessed with. Um, another child called Akira. And that's the basic plot of this. Look at me go. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't actually mention Canada. Canada! So I'm re- that was well done. <laughs> <laughs> when was the first time you saw Akira? Do you, do you remember at all? Yeah, I do. Um, it was on Viet. No, well, 
I don't remember the specific moment of me watching it for the first time, but I remember the feeling of watching it for the first time. And I know that it used to show on on BBC Two a lot when we were younger. Um, And I'm caught like chunks of it on BBC Two now and again late at night and just like, what is this? This is, again, like I was just saying, I'd watch it and go, this isn't for me. This is like... This is like adult and this is naughty and weird for me to watch and I'd just be obsessed with it. And eventually I um I caught it on a VHS copy and it might have been someone like you or one of our friends at school's older brothers or something like that that had it. Um but that we ended up getting getting kind of getting a VHS copy of it. But it's mm-hmm. definitely on VHS the first time I watched it. Yeah. But I can't remember my age because I ne- I didn't see it in like 88 obviously. I was like 3 years old or something. But like um it was some point at like middle school, I think. So maybe we were like 14, 15, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You? Have you got better memories? You always better memories of this. I I remember, like, so basically my cousins uh, came down, well, came up from, from London and um, they were staying for the weekend. And uh, Jonathan Ross did this special and it was, it was just called Manga, I think. And you can actually find it on YouTube. I found it and watched it and it's, so bizarre because it's it has the very first manga or anime convention and it's in Birmingham mm. and it's like above um, <laughs> Nostalgia and Comics and it's like this tiniest like uh, uh, convention what, the ever. little like if, the little kind of mezzanine. Well, you know, you actually... know, it's got like because it's got the uh, the hotel above it, hasn't it, or behind? Oh, it, I thought you meant of... the little mezzanine in the and comic so, shop. <laughs> no, so they had like a uh, a suite in there or whatever for the Comic Con. And um, but like if you look at like that, like if you watch the video, I mean, I'll send you the link in a minute. But sure. um, um, so basically, uh, it's got Jonathan Ross, like because you know Jonathan Ross is like a massive kind of comic book anime fan anyway. And um, it's so funny, he's like going, "Ah, oh, Akira has just come out and it's taken the world by storm." Uh, in England alone, it sold seven thousand copies. I'm thinking, wow, is seven thousand a lot? That doesn't sound like a a great deal. <laughs> Just a quick correction. It was actually 70,000 copies of Akira sold, not 7,000, which is actually a lot more impressive now that you think about it. And it was also the fifth anime convention. So, you know, it'd been going for a little while, this little anime boom in the the United Kingdom. Anyway, back to the show. But, like, you could just see this is, like, where the seeds of, like, 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 Japanese animation, like, spreading outside of Japan. I think as a kid... I remember, I have a very vivid memory of watching um, Laputa, uh, Castle in the Sky. Yeah. On CITV, but I'm pretty sure they serialised it, so they chopped it up. Okay. Because I remember that was really I remember normal. It being on, yeah. I remember it being on CITV and watching it over a couple of weeks, like little bits. Um, but anyway, so my cousins were staying around, and I'm like, oh, and, and basically at the end of the this like manga kind of little half hour documentary. He's like going, um, tune in tomorrow because, you know, we're going to play Akira for the first time. And this was like 94, so the film was already out by, it was like six years old at that point. Because mm. um, I think when it actually came out of the cinemas, it was in, it actually got quite high in the UK like, yeah, charts, it was huge I think. In the UK. Yeah, it, it was. did really well. Yeah. But like, um, so the next day we stayed up really late to watch Akira because I think he was on at midnight. But before that was Mad Max and I'd never seen Mad Max. And bear in mind, so okay. 94, I would have been, what, 9, 10, something like that. Sure. Um, 
And I'm sure there's one scene in Mad Max that sticks out to my mind where I think Mad Max ties a, ha- a guy to the back of his his uh, car and he like drags the guy by his arm and then like rips okay. the guy's arm off or whatever. That always sticks in my mind. I haven't watched the first Mad Max <laughs> in a long time, but that image I sticks wish in my mind. Down, Does that happen in it? I, you know, I don't remember. I don't really like the first one that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this second one is where it gets fun. Um, but then when Akira started, like, and it was actually the Japanese version, so it wasn't like uh, translated or anything like that. I mean, it obviously yeah. had subtitles in it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, like, You're mentioning all the right stuff. It's good. But I'm surprised I'm not as big a fan of anime because when I first saw this, it like literally blew my mind. Like. Yeah. Like after seeing that, this like I kind of got into like uh, Guyver was like a big mm. thing because it was kind of if I remember Guyver was almost sold like a magazine, so like every week you could buy two episodes on video and they were like five pounds. That makes sense. Yeah, I remember that makes buying sense. those. Obviously, of, um, anime. We talked about the Street Fighter animated movie, and obviously yeah. they're all made by different companies, but in the UK they were put out by Manga. Yeah, who were like a yep. company that kind of I don't know if they still exist. I assume they do. They do. They do. They do. They. Do. I was going to talk um, about manga, so yeah. Like, um, and like there was other films like uh, uh, Ninja Scroll, Pat Labor. There was there was loads. This was I mean Ninja Scroll, Devil Devils. Yeah. What, what is that called again? Uh Yurotsutoka. I don't know the one yeah. where the the, the the sex demons kind of the, sex demon <laughs> the sexy one, demons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was that one. There was Vampire Hunter D. There was all sorts. Vampire Hunter D. Yeah, yeah. It's um basically manga. Uh, I mean, anime was. We'll get into this more, but anime was just unknown. And uh, in Britain, there was a, a guy called uh, Frain, who um he ended up thinking, well, Akira's fantastic. Maybe there's more of this. How? What if I set up a company that just brings over Japanese animation to um to Britain? Like it's like he says it will treat it like a record label, like Def Jam. So if people are coming to us for like, like you go to Def Jam for a type of metal, sorry, rap. rap people yeah. will come to manga for a type of animation. Yeah, okay. And he was so fucking successful that I think we need to mention that that like in Britain, especially for people our age who grew up around this time, the terms manga and anime are interchangeable. Like people yeah. will just just call everything manga because it was such a popular brand that everything became known as manga, and it's annoyingly complicated because obviously manga is the comic books and anime is animation, but like uh, everything just became known as manga films, manga films, manga films, and um they for had that years wicked logo like a big yeah red bold logo with white typeface in the front and then the Japanese in the middle, yep. And uh, they went on to basically, for me, like Ghost and Shell was their big one. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, that yeah. they brought over here. Like, um, and they brought over Neo Genesis, Evangelion, and, and stuff like that. Like, did they, they were put just out everything. Perfect Blue as well. I think they did. They, they would have, yeah. Literally yeah, yeah. anything in the 90s was just released by them in the UK. Anything and it just. Other than Ghibli, I'm guessing. Yeah, because Ghibli had deals elsewhere, yeah. Yeah. But, like, um, it just. They, a manga basically created an audience in in Britain for Japanese animation. Uh, it was almost like um, 
it was almost like when you started watching this stuff, you discovered this secret world of stuff you didn't know existed. You know, like like you opened a door and there was just a whole world of animation that was so oh. different to out you could get elsewhere, and that just became like phenomenon in Britain through manga. Well, I mean, like the f- when I saw this film, like you know. The most I'd seen was Disney films or Land Before Time. We you know those kind of yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, blue forgotten blue films and stuff. And like you know, this is the first film where I saw a person's head explode. I saw a naked female, <laughs> like animated <laughs> sure, female, animated, and, yeah. Um, you know, and it was just like it was just an overload to the senses. It was just insane. And not on top of that, the animation is just. It, it's mind blowing. Do you know Some what I mean? Some of the best it's ever just, done. The animation, you know, is, yeah. and like, the, the, like, not to get ahead of myself, but they do the. Oh, I forgot. It's like the forty-five degree angle or whatever, which is notoriously one of the hardest things to draw. Anyway, <laughs> okay. where it's kind of it's not overhead and it's not flat, but it's kind of like on an odd angle. Yeah. Okay. And they do this in the film so much, and it's like I don't even know like how you'd even begin, especially the bike. How the hell you would go about animating that like it's just nuts like there's the perspective, the perspective in this right, is what yeah. gets me like and the but as they move everything moves the background moves the camera moves people things move in relation to the camera to add that perspective there's weird little bits when like the camera will tilt up and the the road and the buildings will move with it to give like like naturally how they would and that's just that's weeks of animation for little shots and stuff it's Im- so impressive there's so many parallax so that's called parallax where you kind of have the background okay. and the foreground they move in different like they move in opposite directions but then you add a camera move to that and it kind of makes it look like it's kind of like it's a camera moving in a physical space mm. i mean the way you do that is literally you'd have a stack it'd like you'd be stacked up of like loads of thin planes of glass and you'd put the background in between one plane of glass and then you'd put the i don't know foreground in one and then the character on a no- in between another oh, let's do that again and then what you'd do is you'd put the background in between one of the planes of glass and then you'd put the foreground in between another one and then the character in between another one and you'd layer it up like that and then you can move them all individually and then put a camera on top and have that moving as well and they kind of create like a kind of like as I said like it's moving in like a real space okay yeah okay There's, there are some parale- parallaxing shots in this that look a bit naff but okay. I kind of think it also adds to it it kind of makes it a bit otherworldly as well at the same time yeah sure and it just makes the city seem so grand and so big it's like they were doing in this a live you know live action repeated in animation in a way that like no one in the west had seen in that way at all and, and they, it was just so different it's hard to overestimate how different it was it, to me i can imagine it's like watching star wars for the first time because the things sure. they do like that that like the first sequence is the bike chase yeah which is just so well done like there's like just the ripples of the clothes as they're driving along or like where people like you know i think the one kind of when he pulls out like a stick just to smack the other one out just i don't know just i can't verbalize it but it's just <laughs> you've got to watch it just to see how good it is and a lot of the time it's like a back background with just like speed lines but it's yeah so yeah effective. yeah sure and like 
one common misconception about this film is that it's that everyone says it's all on uh, ones, which means it's 24 frames a second all the time, which is not true. There's a lot yeah. of twos and there's some threes. There's even scenes in the bike scene. I mean, I can catch it just because I'm, it's what I do for a living. It's what you do, yeah, sure. There are there's bits where some of the bikes are on ones, some of them are on twos and stuff, but you don't notice it because it's just so frantic and... yeah. But oh, there's so many great sequences in this film. Oh, we um talk about like the impact of the film as well. Like I think it's really key to say that this it was not the first, you know, despite what I said at the beginning, it wasn't the first Japanese animation films released in the West. But it really was the first Japanese animation films released in the West that wasn't gutted by American studios to try and fit it to American audiences and expectations. So, like, you had stuff like, um, let's say, Na- 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 Norska, uh, the, the Ghibli film, who's quite mm-hmm. famously was gutted into, like, 25 minutes was taken out of it. That's shocking. Um, like, why Why would you even take, like, it's only like a 90-minute movie anyway, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Uh, total, total, just gutted for the audiences, um, and they tried to they tried to aim everything at kids. So no matter what came out of Japan, the American release it would take it, gut it, aim it towards kids, and it would get dumped off on VHS onto TV shows, like you were saying, or like just dumped on like weird cinemas around the US. Um, there was nothing that was a big release. This was so different in the fact that like this was like. Um, it was such a cultural bomb to audiences of adult animation with complex scene, like horror, violence. Um, it was always going to make a bigger cultural impact in America and the West than it did in Japan. And that is its legacy, ultimately, is that in it, in, it didn't do that well in Japan. <laughs> like, well, it did okay. But the, thing, the, the one thing about Japan is they don't treat animation as as a genre it's not a genre like so in, oh, yes, in yeah. the west they like we treat animation as a genre it's kids films yeah, but yeah. in in japan it's it's just another way of telling a story yeah it's just another just another medium to tell you a story which i i think we've gotten better at that but still to this day i think you know most of the films animated films that come out in the west are still kids films or yeah or or this they're, they're like like soul or something like that, which are have a lot of adult things and stuff films, like that. that we, but we still get stuff out of it. But like they're not made for you know adults at no, all. No, no, no. Like Even like TV shows and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think like my point about it making a bigger impact abroad than Japan is like nothing looks like Akira. Like Akira has kind of fallen out popular consciousness somewhat. Like, um, things aren't coming out of America that is like Akira. Sorry, at Japan that's like Akira. Right. Like, the look of it, the um, style of it isn't like modern anime at all. Like, it just didn't yeah. have that lasting impact to what anime looks like. And, like, I think that's really key to understand what a weird little cultural artifact this is. Like, we'll get to the creation of it, but he was aiming this in a Western audience. Like, he was basing this on Western, like, media. And he was pushing towards that way which is so different to to the kind of the consumer class that anime was always pushed for in japan and like this period it's worth to say like it's not just the the product of akira existing is not just the fact that it got pushed outside of america makes such a sorry outside japan makes such a big impact in america but actually what's happening in animation in japan is really key to what akira is as well 
because we're getting what people have called like that golden age. Whereas in the 70s, um, I think 49 animated feature films were made in Japan. Um, things like Loop in the Third, you know, you've mm-hmm. probably seen them. The Belladonna of Sadness, I think is Japanese. But like, yeah, um, in the 80s, 220 animated feature films were made. Wow. And it's really important to know that like Japan was coming out of um, the 60s and 70s into the 80s in an economic boom. And that's why stuff like, you know, Nintendo exists and Sega exists. It's why our childhood was full of these Japanese things like Akira um, because of this big boom in in consumer classes in Japan. So for the first time, I mean, anime had had been a thing in Japan since like the 50s. But what that meant is by the time the 80s came around, the people animating were geniuses. They've been doing Mm -hmm. it for 30 years, like... And the people who well, had grown like the, up with that animation. It's like the Disney old men, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah, they were yeah. so amazing at that. They're so gifted that they could just, they could literally do a bike that goes 360, spins around, <laughs> yes. does whatever it needs to do, like, without and, thinking and, about it. And what you can add to that is the fact that people had grown up with animated films in Japan were now entering the industry. So people like they were they were coming into this period where you not only got the clash of the geniuses been doing it for 30 years, but kids growing up with it who wanted to make their own impact as well. And there were no expectations, but there was a lot of money. So like really, like I, I still like anime. I like watching anime, but like there's something about anime in the 80s where there isn't expectations about what it looks like, what it feels like and tropes of it. And it's not, and it's not got like pandering fan service in the way that stuff happens now. Like it's prior to like otaku, otaku, otaku culture. It's mm-hmm. prior to that kind of this is what anime looks like, you know, cat girls and whatever, big eyes. It's it's prior to that kind of almost like um, that cultural trope that anime becomes. And the eighties just wild, and they were just playing whatever they wanted to play with, you know, like. And you got stuff like coming out of the 80s, like Angel's Egg, Grave of Fireflies, Totoro, Gunbuster, Cowboy Bebop, like Love Hina, Card Capture Sakura, Macross, like uh, Gundam, Dragon Ball, like is all coming out of that period. And these these are all different, you know, they're all anime, but they're all very, very different in their presentation and what they look like and what they feel like. And they all go on to kind of make what's now modern anime. And this thing that almost sits a bit apart is Akira. That was so big outside of Japan, but doesn't hasn't really ever done anything in Japan as well. And there's good reasons for that as well, actually, beyond the kind of thing that it sits a bit separately. It's a, it's a, I think it's fun looking at eighties animation. It's fun looking at eighties anime. I think like there's no like expected boundaries for it. Like it can be hypersexualized. It can be violent. It can be gory. And audiences had no expectation of what it was going to be in. So yeah, so this started off as a comic book, didn't it? Like, was it like nineteen eighty two? Eighty two, yeah. The um, Kashimiru Otaro, um, he'd been writing serials for ages, and he was always writing sci-fi. Like, um, and he'd had a bit of a mixed experience with kind of adapting stuff. So I think Domu Domu was his um. A uh, comic before this was about a girl and old man in an apartment block, and uh, it goes to wild places. But um, he basically got because that was so big, he got a big contract from the publisher to write a new comic, and he came up with Acura, um, which he was like, it will probably be quite short, you know, ten chapters. I think he put in originally, 
and he wasn't expecting it to be a success. Um, he just kind of had a basic plot outlined of um, about destruction, really, more than anything else, about kind of destruction of Japan or Tokyo. It was just one of these things, as he started writing, he couldn't finish it, and it kept on growing, and it kept on changing, and he kept on adding to it, really. And um, that, like, he... Um, yeah, he didn't know where to go with it at all, is what I was saying. <laughs> Do you know how much... Obviously, you know, because Akira is, like, three massive... If you look at the collection, it's, like, three massive volumes, isn't it? I don't know how many issues Six it volumes. Is. is it six Six volumes. volumes. Yeah. It's 2,000 pages, Akira <laughs> is. And... So, so obviously, there's going to be differences. Huge differences. But, like, yeah. like does it... Ha- what are the main differences? Do you know at all, or yeah, um, the it's it's quite weird that um, the film itself it's one of these we talk about this a few times actually in in films that we've looked at, but um, it's one of these things that he was the writer of it. He was the, also the writer of the manga. He actually ends up um, he ends up getting told to adapt it halfway through and because he had such um, bad experiences with adapting his stuff before, he took creative control of it. And what actually... <laughs> so he ends up directing it, yeah. And what actually happens is the film gets finished first before the uh, manga. So the manga doesn't finish for four years until after uh, the film comes out. Like, I think it's 90, 1990 or 1992 or something like that. It finishes. Well, I'm guessing he drew, but he, drew, he drew the comic book as well. Yeah, yeah, he drew the comic book. So, yeah. like, they, so during production, was he still writing the comic and drawing the yep. comic as well as doing the film? That's nuts. <laughs> it was made like before, during, and after, and he's been quite on record in the fact that the film existing changed what he wrote. You know, it, it like it it made him look at his work differently as he was working on it, and it made significant impact into his comic as well. And I think the best way to word it up. Is, is really that the film kind of represents like two thirds of the first volume and like right. a third of the last one is the kind of the best way to quickly just, sum it up. Is it a bit like Scott Pilgrim where all the middle is just gone? Yeah, yeah, all the middle is just gone. Um, and I think like there's a very, there's very, there's very specific things that make it really different. But what really is the biggest difference is the fact that, um, there's no main character in the comic. So Canada isn't such a lead protagonist in the comic as he okay. is in the movie. And I think by changing that structure immediately, you immediately change how the presentation of it as well. This, The comic is much more about the city of New Tokyo, Neo Tokyo, and the situation they're in and how this levels of destruction affect that city and I think it's the only failing of the movie is the fact that there is too much going on and there's not enough to be able to resolve it like you don't really get yeah. any much res- resolution of this- like the political class even though you see it like you don't get much resolution of what like the kind of um the coup means to the the city you don't get yeah. much resolution of what the cultists mean and you don't get much resolution about the kind of biker gangs as well. The film kind of strips that away and becomes a story about um, about um, Tetsuo and and uh, Canada, really. And it's good. It's a good story. 
it's a good film and that emotional beats are there but those emotional beats between those characters even barely exist in the comic uh their relationship is not as tight in the comic and um it's uh, <laughs> and uh tetsuro is not as uh He's not as uh, sympathetic in the comic at all. He's much more of an out-and-out villain, and it's much more specific right. about that as well. There's tons of stuff. Like Lady uh, Miyako um, is a huge character in the comic. She's uh, a giant, giant character in the comic, really important. She becomes one of the main like, kind of protagonists, or well, antagonists at the end, depending on how you look at her. In the film, she's in like one scene, <laughs> like, one tiny scene, and she's not even named. And Which, scene's really that? Which scene's that? The, uh, when... Um, when Tetsuro is going to find Akira, she's being carried by tons of cultists on like uh, on the backs of like a little kind of oh, okay. thing, <laughs> um, and she's one of the most important characters in the comic, and is not even present in the film. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's things like that are really um, are really weird about the fact that they are they are they are different things. Like they they're both adapting the same kind of source story, but they are very different things. Like end products of what what story's going on and the biggest difference well not you know one of the other biggest difference is Akira is a character in the comic book Akira is alive Akira becomes a really important character oh, Akira's alive it's not like a test test tube it's not kind of, like, yeah you just find his organs in a in the film uh no uh Tetsuro becomes Akira's uh, like a henchman in the um oh okay in the comics and stuff like that and and it comes a big war can't remember the specific name on it uh something of new new tokyo but like the whole idea that otomo had was basically like there's loads of media about apocalypse situations and cataclysms what if the cataclysm happened in the middle of the story and we could tell the story then and the funny thing about the film is that actually doesn't happen the apocalypse that happens in akira happens right at the end of this film and then they wrap it up by saving the day but in the comic, the, the apocalypse happens and then it tells a story of what the apocalypse in Akira, uh, sorry, in New Tokyo actually feels like and impacts all these characters oh, wow. that you've got to know um, and how it changes the entire world and city uh, with this new, like, Akira, this villain now existing as a character, really. So it's very different very very different <laughs> so the end obviously the end of the film is that they kind of create like i don't i'm, I'm gonna butcher this or get it completely wrong because i think this is the first <laughs> time i've actually sat down properly to try and figure out the plot okay or like already pay attention to the to the actual story but like so they essentially like it's creating another dimension not dimension but like a new there's like almost like a new big bang or a new universe being created isn't there essentially kind yeah. of at the end of the film and it's getting contained yeah. so that, so that yeah. it doesn't cause a massive nuclear attack like it did before is that right so the nukes inside yes. of the universe and that's what's the big bang or whatever i think like yeah there's a lot of imagery in the film about the explosions being like big bangs this about kind of creation from destruction kind of stuff and i think yeah. the end is meant to be that tetsuo is kind of becoming a god yeah. of this plane of existence that he shapes kind of i think that's kind of what's happening <laughs> but like it's just like it just goes to show like how dropping an atomic bomb on a city will have an effect years and years and years and years just within the zeitgeist <laughs> like so we watched ran which obviously yeah not last yeah. week which was you know 
a lot of that was you know based on you know Hiroshima oh, I can't pronounce it Hir- <laughs> why can't I pronounce it Hiroshima and Hiroshima Nakasaki. And Nakasaki yeah. yeah and then this like literally does it opens up with uh, an atomic bomb or what you spoke you think is an atomic bomb but it's actually not is it it's Akira the first one you see isn't it yeah 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 the huge explosion it's about destruction you know it's about it's you know it's about a fallout of that nuclear explosion and what happens you know it has deep roots into that kind of world war Two era japan and that um and like it's not just about the nuclear bomb. It's it's mixing two things actually. Like a lot of this is about the kind of World War Two era Japan and their war crimes. You know, mm-hmm. it has stuff about like the kind of um, uh, militarization of the country during that era. It has stuff about the kind of um, medical trials and we and that the the, the um, cruel medical and bioweapon stuff that Japanese would do in like in like Manchuria that's in that in the kind of dealing with the espers in this uh it's it's about that kind of weird horrible history that japan were trying to come out of you know the end of what they call the showa period and the in the same way that like the olympics got used as that in the 60s in japan as showing that they were this bright new country out of like the um the problems uh sorry in the 70s or whatever it was like uh the um this is for front and putting the Olympics again as a kind of message that they will use the Olympics as an, as a cover for like the ridiculousness in their own society. Well, I thought kind that was of insane. They they like, had the Olympics in twenty twenty. <laughs> I was going to say yeah, it's set in nineteen nineteen, no two thousand nineteen. Yeah, and they're talking about the Olympics next year, isn't it? <laughs> it's so weird. Like, I don't know that, how. And obviously, far the advanced... memes are very high. The memes are very high. Yeah, in Japan I know. I know yeah, delivered, like, like how how far advanced are the Olympics announced? Obviously, back in not that advanced. Did, I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like four or five years or something like that. I think like I bet you it's longer than that. I reckon it's probably a good. T- like if you think about the World Cup and you. Oh went no! To yeah, probably Qatar, is. Yeah, that was like yeah. what a good ten years, maybe longer. I think I meant they announced four or five of them at a time. I think is right. What I meant. Okay. Um, so that would be about 10 years yeah like i think um and also like to go it's really important to say as well that this is also influenced by the 60s 70s japan as well it's not just world war Two, and it's really you know the, the 60s we, uh, we won't know much about japanese politics <laughs> but like uh, the 60s saw the biggest protest that ever took part in japan still like uh there was uh prime minister kishi at the time um, was one of the I don't know how to even go into this he was a high ranking member of World War 2 Japan and he ended up being the Prime Minister of Japan in the 60s it's like it's basically like oh, if okay. Germany elected like Himna it's so like <laughs> it's it's so weird he was and he was he was like he was in charge of Manchuria during like World War 2 like and that's like the worst thing Japan ever did like and he ended up being the Prime Minister of Japan which led like huge amounts of fucking protests in Japan like massive massive things and like student uprising and and demonstrations and stuff and Otomo is so writing about this in Akira like he's so going into this spirit of like um, youth protest and youth revolution and youth kind of running these gangs to to fight against the the you know the the government and fight against the military and stuff and that is seeded into into Akira in a way that like you would like someone maybe 
older than him wouldn't be writing. I think like the fact mm. that he was living through this was so important to him. So it isn't just about World War Two. It's not just about the bomb. It is about Japanese society as well. And it's also like, and he's mixing this in with like um, Western Western films that he loves. And that he that he's quite open about this. That this he he was influenced by like Star Wars. <laughs> he says this like fucking Star Wars always. <laughs> like, but um, I think Blade Runner is the other one he mentions, which is I think it's quite obvious when you actually watch it. But uh, he's he's bringing all that influences in, and he's and he he says like he loves writing sci-fi. But for this, what he really wanted was enjoying doing is mixing kind of American sci-fi with the Japanese stuff that he was doing, and it and it. He was almost, he wasn't thinking it would just be good in the West, but he was definitely occurring to him that this might be a really big hit in the West. He also says that he was influenced by War of the Worlds um, and 19th century London, and he brought that into um, into Akira a load, like especially the animation, which is quite interesting as well, because the only other animated film he really did was Steam Boy after this, and Steam Boy's massively about 19th century London. And Steam that's another, that's so, another great film. I need to watch that. Steamboy's great. It's so good. Um, you could like. Um, I mean, I talked about it earlier, but he must have been influenced by like those Western artists, like comic book artists, like Mobius and stuff, like those French In, yeah. kind of artists who did those like hyper detailed kind of. They weren't detailed in the fact that they looked realistic, but they were like just super i don't know just super detailed and and yeah. it's always about mobius stuff was always overwhelming wasn't it like they yeah, had like flying cities and like huge landscapes and stuff. yeah like big vistas and stuff like that and yeah and, but, but then some like bizarre kind of structure or kind of i don't know and like the color palette was always like kind of pastels and i, I think yeah. kind of there's like kind of a lot of pastely kind of colors but then contrasted with like the bright reds of like canada's jacket and his bike and then Tetsuo's yeah. like cape that he has at the end. So, um, should we should we try and like sum up the plot? I know I know you've done the little plot summary, but kind of like what <laughs> what actually happens in Akira. I I think actually before we get into that, I'd just like to mention the production a bit actually. Okay. Um, okay. because uh, basically he had this story that was ending up being shown that it was going to be quite fucking epic, like this, you know, like game of thrones type thing and they wanted to put it into film and they decided that in order to even try and do this thing justice it was going to call for a budget that had never been used in anime before so it ended up being the equivalent of about 10 million dollars which was something like it was billions of yen i haven't got it in front of me but like and so to fund it they actually was a merger of japan's like largest entertainment companies at the time so there was like seven or eight of these companies, like Kondasha. I won't pronounce any of these correctly. Um, Did Man- Toho main- put it out? Yeah, Toho, Toho, Toho put it out, but Bandai, uh, Haduko, uh, Makinini, Laserdisc, uh, and Sumoto were all these kind of like uh, entertainment corporations that all started putting money into it. So it came as 1.1 billion yen. I wonder <laughs> and, if this is why there's not much like merchandise for it. Like it's like because the white lights are all. Tied I up. think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the I've got absolutely all over the place. But I'd love to have. I you know me, I love my toys. I they did do a a Canada and his bike, but it was one of those toys where 
it's like in a pose, but the limbs move, but they move. They only like swivel or whatever. So like you can only put him really in one position. You can't have him in any kind of position you want. It, it's just made so he can sit on the bike. That's it. Huh. But I'd love a series of range of Akira figures. I'd love it. I think like I want to talk it. about the future of Akira as well, but I think you're right. I think like the reason there isn't that huge merch is because it's the production of this was tied up in such complicated legal messes. Well, and you, you talked think, like, earlier that it's it's kind of fallen out of the zeitgeist, kind of. Yeah, it's because yeah. they can't keep it in the zeitgeist because <laughs> sure. you can't. The, you know, I'm surprised there hasn't there wasn't an anime sequel or. Um, you know, well, like yeah, we might as well say I'm the biggest thing I'm surprised about is it's never been adapted into a series. Yeah, I totally. Think, yeah, like a. I think that's the that's the key thing that it, that it should be adapted into is is actually a long series, and it's there's pre- much precedent for it. Like you know, um, uh, Alchemist was like a TV series, and it diverted from the comics, so they redid like Alchemist Brotherhood. You know, like uh, they and to stick to the series itself, I think. I think it would make, and the fact that this is a two thousand word like like manga would really like owe itself to actually a series because the manga, as I was saying, the manga itself is about the city. It's not about like one character, and that would be so good in serial form. I, I guess though, I it's got so much to live up to in terms of the the quality mm. of the animation though. Like to do that, to do hand drawn. Like I don't want to see it as CGI. I don't want to see it. Sure, I, sure. You know, you know, you you're not gonna get a cell animate. You know, they're not gonna do a cell animation show anymore. That doesn't exist. It it would be no. done like you know how modern animations, which are done on like two boom, where things are kind of like puppet tools and stuff like that. So I just yeah, don't. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine like a full on hand drawn, not even cell, but even hand drawn version. I just I can't see it. But um, well, that's what's key to this as well. That huge budget meant that they hired seventy people to animate this. Like, and um that never been done before you mentioned it before that like the animation be- went between 12 and 24 frames a second yeah, yeah. um 24 frames a second animation is insane like it's i mean insanity. i hardly do it because it's just like, it's crazy it's crazy amount they have to draw like and as you say it was hand drawn and you the know, end film hundred sixty thousand cons- frames of hundred sixty thousand frames <laughs> like more than it think that's more than doubled what had been normal for animation films at that point um, they well, also did a Disney crazy do, thing. Disney do twos, which is one thing everyone goes, oh, Disney's all on ones. It's like, not really. It's mostly on twos. <laughs> and um, they also did a thing that the animators, the dialogue was all pre-recorded, so the animators could actually do it to the performance, um, which was, wasn't normal at all. Like This was like the, one of the first times it had ever been done in such a grand scale for Japanese animation. And it just meant that the animators could create something with the smoothest and most like like intrinsic kind of action kind of available really it feels like you're watching live action honestly like and i think some of that is that just attention to detail when you see like when you see that all that kind of the tiny little frames of stuff when like when glass explodes and there's just like tiny little shirts everywhere animate slow-mo they animate the slow-mo which is nuts yeah animate slow-mo yeah the thing i love is like the light trails off the bikes and then um 
Yeah. Like all the bikes have headlights and stuff like that. And the way you do that, like now you it, you just comp it on really easily by using like some After Effects uh, preset to kind of put like the headlights in. Right. But what right, they do right. now, what they do there is they'd get a piece of black paper and wherever the, wherever like the whole, so they'd, they'd have a blank piece of black paper that's the same size of whatever the frame is. And they'd cut a hole out wherever the headlight is. Okay. And they'd, blast light through that and then photograph that so you have one pass that's all black but with this light in the middle or wherever that would animate around the screen then you'd composite the two shots together and then you'd get your lights on the headlights it's just when you watch it the amount of like detail that's on screen at the same time if you watch a group shot everyone is in it is in unique they're yeah. uniquely moving they you like their clothes are reacting to the atmosphere around them, you know, like flapping in the wind or, and they're each individually moving. When you see stuff like, like the end showcase, when uh, Tetsu is like absorbing all that mechanical stuff around him, like individual wires and bolts and <laughs> things are, are twisting and moving and, and snapping into place. And, and, at, and as you say, reacting to light around it individually, which it's not like a live action when you just shine a light on something. This is, you're animating light. Well, <laughs> like, animating it's not like a 3D program now, you know. It's like, the one thing that people don't even notice. It's the shadow. The shadows move yeah. around the contours of things. Like most of the time mm. when people do shadows now, it's just like you you basically, whatever you've animated, you duplicate that, flip it up around or kind of just alter the perspective of it. But no, they yeah. animated the shadows like rotating around objects or falling off objects, and it's just oh, it's, it's mind blowing. It's so good, it's mind blowing. It is absolutely mind blowing, and I think it's one of the things watching it, like to 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 say that how mind blowing it would have been to see this in the cinema in the eighties. Like nothing could look like this before. It really hadn't. Like, and nothing to like to this detail to like to be drawn in that smoothness and stuff. But and like, I think what comes no live-action well is... film had looked this like <laughs> epic before. You know, obviously you had Star Wars, yeah, 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 but they yeah, couldn't yeah. do the things. Star Wars isn't do. this epic in no. the same way. Like, no. Star Wars has uh, Star Wars suggests epicness. Yeah. It doesn't. This it doesn't shows it doesn't everything. Like, like, yeah, you know, this shows what happens when the Death Star blows up and what. Yeah. <laughs> like you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and it's and it's it it revels in that destruction. This is what I think is really cool about it. Is like it's. The destruction is focused focused upon, and it's exact. Like when destruction's in this, and it's the same with the comic. Like it's it's shot front and center. You're seeing the window smashes. You're seeing people kind of get affected by it. You're seeing like people fall off bridges as it collapses and stuff. You you can even identify the individual people dying because they've given you a bit of the cultural scope around them and shown the characters as well. Like this is not just this is not about destruction on like an a, like a, a broken observer basis this is about destruction about people in there and they're seeing it and you're in there with them the camera's in there and showing you this and it's it's not like godzilla where like he steps on a house and you don't you're not seeing anyone in the house this is this is you're on the ground level and godzilla's above you breaking everything well there's <laughs> like there's, there's one sequence where tetsu is in the hospital and like all these toys around him kind of start yeah. to form an even bigger toy, like a big teddy yes. bear and stuff. And you just like you're just in awe of like just the amount of detail that's gone into this, like the amount of effort and detail. And like, is, that's it's so not cool. like when you draw these things, it's not like you draw them on like a gigantic piece of paper. You probably draw them <laughs> on as big as an A three, if that. 
So the, just yeah. the amount of detail that goes in. And like everything's individually coloured and stuff. So if you're thinking about it, you hand draw everything. Well, you do everything as a storyboard. Then you do your keyframes, which is like you'll do your first shot, your last shot, your middle shots, and then a few in-betweens. And then you'll start doing all your in-betweens and sketching it out on paper and drawing it all out. And then you'll perfect it on paper. And then you'd put acetate on top of that paper, draw around it with like this black pen. <laughs> And then you'd flip it over and then you'd paint it <laughs> and you'd do that 160,000 times. Yeah, it's, I don't, I I would almost love to speak to some of the animators on this, like more than Otomo, I'd like to speak to some of the, actually, speaking of some of the animators, one of the animators on this was, was um, Satishi, Satishi Khan who hey. did dark, like the perfect blue. So like, I think this was such a mammoth effort that I think the, like the Venn, not not Venn, like it's like family tree. You could draw animators that worked on Akira and then went out <laughs> into anime itself, which probably most of them ended up kind of having a career on themselves because it just took everyone around them to come make this film. We need all of you. We need everyone that exists in Japan all at the moment to come draw this. Yeah, and it's it's cool. What I love, like you know, we're talking about like um. You know, we tend to talk about like uh, autair-driven stuff as well, like in this podcast. Um, we're not exclusively, but we, you know, we tend to fall on that kind of stuff. And uh, this is one of those autair-driven things as well, which, uh, you know, you technically, you know, you talked about Ralph Batch, Bat- Basky, Batchy, 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 Batchy. Batchy. earlier, like who is obviously an animated autair, but autair system didn't exist within Disney and DreamWorks, you know, like. They were they were just kind of collective studio efforts of everyone pitching in together to make a film. Like, you know, I, you know, you can speak about some of the Disney directors, but they're never really Otter driven films. And um, this is this is absolutely driven by Otomo, and oh, yeah. I think that's that's really cool and different. And it goes to show that like just letting a difference in the kind of well, studio system and the way you make something can change well, what it if comes you look out at, as. If you look at Disney, like a lot of their directors, they're people who've worked their way up through the ranks. So, you know, they, yeah. they've been an animator, then they've kind of probably been... Proven uh, themselves. Yeah, they've budgets. been in charge of one scene and then they <laughs> yeah. become like an assistant director or whatever, like an animation supervisor or whatever, until they become a director, which basically just means they're overseeing the whole making sure it all comes together fine but yeah they're making sure it gets drawn on time but when Otomo he hadn't done it as far as I know he hadn't done an animated film before this or a film at all so the fact that they gave him a film to direct on such a big budget is just it's not heard of and just and the fact that you know he said I'll only do this as long as I've got complete complete control yeah you know I think like because he um robot carnival was something he worked on before but it might i think it was just an anthology of various different people coming together to make to make a film but again that seems to be the only thing that he'd ever worked on animated style i don't know how he managed to sweet talk his way into being able to like direct this well i think like i just said i think they very cool i think they just wanted to make it and he said look it's only going to be made if i if I'm in control and you don't say anything, <laughs> like I yeah, think that's it, really. Well, he had the. It's his comic book. He had the power. It's either a case yeah. of you don't make, don't make it at all, or you make it with me and I. What I say goes. I get, I get the impression it ballooned because his previous work, he was quite mad when it got adapted because they just kind of didn't do what he thought was important really and, and didn't do it right. So when he when he was making this, he pushed for just creative control, and I got a feeling that when they were like, let's adapt this, let's make a movie of this. He'd 
because he had that control, he managed to just keep pushing it, and it just kept on ballooning to the point where it became something so giant and so massive. And so, and like, you know, you're talking a period where, as you were saying, the budgets were bigger. There was there was suddenly a lot of consumption of this stuff. They were making so many animated movies a year. There was clearly an audience for it that the studios just felt like they could do this. They would make money of it. It would be successful. And especially because they just saw something in it, in the fact that it was looked different and you could push it to the West, I think was the big thing as well. Whereas a lot of the stuff coming out, I don't think they had any, um, they weren't comfortable in the idea that they could push this out into the West. Whereas, but this has clearly got tons of influence by Western films and stuff as well. And clearly they just had that kind of confidence that they would be able to make money on this. And they were right. They were very right. (laughs) <laughs> so before before we get into the main plot of it, like it's worth noting that the music, like you think like a film that's set in the future. Well, I say future; it's now the past because it's like what 2019 is set. But like, and like it's all about a bike gang who've kind of got like the main guy Candace has got this kind of like very futuristic looking bike that he's built himself, and that you'd mm. think you'd have like a hard driving rocking soundtrack or like techno or whatever. <laughs> but no, I'd it say doesn't. the bike was based on Tron, by the way. Well. Was it? I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it's got the like the light kind of the light. Yeah, the light look of it. Yeah. But um, so the music is like going back to like uh, Ran that we talked about the other week with like the the Noah or No whatever kind of uh, themes going on with the some of the characters like the uh, you know the Grant the you know the warlord and uh, the one wife and that. apparently the music is very inspired by Noah in this where it's kind of got like those. It's kind of like just wooden glockenspiel kind of not glockenspiel but it's like just wooden instruments isn't it just kind of very elemental yeah it is and like Most gongs of the music and is. stuff like that where it's you know i can't i can't speak to this because i don't know enough about it but um uh i've read that the music's inspired by like um uh indonesian music okay and it's weird and almost controversial because indonesia was like um basic colony of japan during like world war ii so that cultural use of their music in this it's you can read it two ways and i don't know which way is actually uh, okay I got you. like one that it's kind of quite bad that he's using this music um or secondly that he might be making a bit of a statement using it as well uh, okay um but I, I might be very wrong on that, so I'm sorry if I am really wrong and I'm giving bad information. But it's something I kept on seeing when I was doing um, a bit of research on it that people kept on kind of bringing this up. But I just, you know, I need I need an Indonesian person to come tell me about I it. Mean, you know, like <laughs> politics aside, it it does incredibly like just from oh, a, it's wonderful. Just, it's it's amazing in the film and just kind of yeah, like almost like the chanting kind of like the the chorus kind of like singing yes. as well that happens especially yeah. like when i think like uh tetsuo is like changing and stuff like that it's kind of like big gongs going on and uh, like the big chorus chances <laughs> it like I, I i would love to have seen this on the cinema like watch yeah. this on the biggest screen screen possible like seeing that giant huge like tetsuo becoming that giant huge like baby almost like baby with, thing yeah. yeah it's um everything about this is grand and big and different and like in your face and I think um, I think one of the things that made it stand out as well in, in especially in, eight, in the 80s is like a like most uh, yeah most western 
I don't know. I don't know how to say this. A lot of media is quite positive about how technology is a good thing. Like, um, but Japanese doesn't tend to have that. Japanese media doesn't tend to have that positivity about technology. Which is weird um, because they're like instigators of a lot of, of a, especially around this time, they were like instigators in a lot of it though, weren't they really? What do you mean like, making new technology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah. But I think that's that. Then you got like cultural commentators saying, yeah, like, yeah, you know, the, yeah. technology's bad. Have you seen the A bomb? <laughs> like, <it's laughs> like, um, but as America's, a lot of American media and a lot of British media at the time was really about how the idea of the technocratic future will save you. I mean, it's not just a. It's not just about media. It's like it was a big thing in in British, especially like um, cultural mindset, social mindset was about a technocratic future will save us. You know, it will fix everything. It will harmonize culture and harmonize the ecosystem. As long as we use technology to do it, will save the earth and save global warming and everything like that. Like that through the use of technology. This just this idea that technocratic stuff can be a vision of utopia. It was. It's a really. It was a really big thing in like the sixties, seventies America, uh, and England, seventies and eighties. Like, and this isn't that. And it's you know, it's not like, it's not like I don't know Star Wars when the the weapon is you know your weapon is your future weapon that's going to save everything. Like this is your future weapon's going to destroy everything, and your technology and use of that stuff will not lead to a utopia. It will only lead to worse and like social situations and worse and like uh, um, worlds and I think that's I'm not maybe it's not unique but it feels unique to me at this time uh, from at least on the stuff we're watching the way they draw the school and like the surrounding areas and stuff like that it just all kind of like what you were saying it speaks to that kind of mm. it just doesn't yeah, feel the schools nice are like the school's overpopulated yeah. and there's just random violence everywhere like for these kids lives much bigger things in the comics is the drugs drugs are massive in the comics compared to this you get like a bit of an indication of it and you get that scene when Tetsuro is looking for his hit and ends up killing the two people who like well one of them he kills one of them yeah. who won't um won't give him the drugs and stuff like that but the um the comic is full of drug use it's all about it really well i mean and, um, the 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 bar owner, I guess, like he... Mm. And, like, well, don't forget the back of uh, Canada's jacket as well. Jacket and stuff, yeah. It's it's hinted in this. It's just in the comic, it's a lot more explicit and explicitly written. I guess you've got to like, gotta pick your battles when you do a two-hour film. Yeah. Like. <laughs> exactly. And as um, Ottomo even says, it was the worst idea he's ever had to make this film when he was writing the comic as well. <laughs> like, <laughs> which, as you said, I think he didn't get much sleep during those years. <laughs> He's, he's still around, he's okay. He's still around. Never really made much. I mean, as you say, Steam Boy to be is fair, the only other animated thing I'd, he ever made. If I'd written and directed Akira, I'd be like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, right, I'm done. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with that. I've made my impact, I'm done. I think I think he might have gone into producing or something like that, I think, but more than in, like, keep on directing though he's got something I really want to watch I've never heard before I was looking up this his follow up to this was a live action film called World Apartment Horror um, and it was written by um, um, it was written by uh, oh ah, what's his fucking name uh, Satishi Khan right sorry so like it's got this live action horror film that was directed by Kashmir Otomo and directed by Satishi Khan I'm wow. like, what is this? How have I never heard of this film? <laughs> like, 
I really want to watch it, but I can't find it anywhere. I was doing, I was searching all the, I was sailing all the seas, all the piracy seas, and I just couldn't find it anywhere. But I think that'd be really fascinating. It might be well, bad, but it's unique. Well, like, 2001, he um, he wrote the script for Metropolis. Oh, did he? Yeah, and then he directed a live-action film called uh, Mushishi. Yeah, Mushishi or something, Mushishi. yeah. And he's done uh, music videos fairly recently. Well, I say cool. recently, like five years ago. Um, but as you say, like 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 music videos, especially. He has Eisner the, the Award. Cool- he's got Harvey Awards. You know, he's got all the big <laughs> comic book awards. But you're right. You're you're absolutely right in the fact that he doesn't need to make anything because people keep making his stuff. Like, was it um, Kanye West? The music video was just Akira. Like, um, I've like not the amount seen of times this. this the amount of time this just shows up in like pop culture past it is just ridiculous. People are keeping it alive. He doesn't need to do anything. Well, I mean, like you only have to look at films like uh, oh, what's that superhero one? Chronicle is basically it's kind sure. of like Akira, I guess. And like yeah. I know we shouldn't talk about this thing, but like I guess Fantastic Beasts kind of is kind of got a bit of that in there with the uh, Ezra Miller's characters kind of got like that power that kind of can't be controlled uh, okay. or whatever yeah i didn't think of that but yeah that that is the same yeah but we won't <laughs> we won't mention that ever again but i mean it just fed into making everything like neogenesis especially like evangelion evangelicon like um and you know ghost in the shell the amount of things that just started coming out because of this is quite impressive really <laughs> we should um I do want to talk about, like, we're talking about the kind of, you know, talking about him as a product. We have to mention live-action Akira. <laughs> we have to mention, <laughs> like, like what is this insanity? And you were talking about weird rights earlier. I think one of the reasons there hasn't been a serialisation of this is because the rights to the film are owned by Mr. John Peters. <laughs> and, um, Hang on. John Peters, and- the guy who did, like, Superman Returns and that? No. Ah, yeah. him, okay. That so he wants a John big Peters. spider in it somewhere or... <laughs> yes. Or a, yeah. So he got the film rights in 20, 2002 and announced that he was going to make, like, he was going to produce a live-action film that was going to be directed by the Blade director, Stephen Norrington. Oh, who did Leave like, a Gentleman. Yes. And then his quit next directing. One, <laughs> that was going to be his next film. So his ghost, after League of Gentlemen, he was going to do Akira and it was going to be written by James Robinson who also wrote um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, yeah, League of Legends didn't go well. <laughs> it's weird though. Like, I've I've definitely seen worse films than that that have yeah, the directors yeah, yeah. have carried on. He must have just had such a shit time making that film. <laughs> <laughs> he must have. Like I can so, imagine yeah. Connery was probably like trying to ghost direct it or something. I think he basically did. Yeah, and he and he pushed all the kind of his characters well, and and it was. I mean, it was produced by John Peters. All the producing things in that film, you can just feel it. The introduction of the American character, who I can't remember his name now. Like, um, it's so much heavy-handed in deciding what the look of this thing is. And it, the fact that it looks nothing like Alan Moore's work is so weird. Yeah. The fact it's like, they don't even take like hints from it to kind of make it. A, it was already a bit of a successful story. It's just so lazy. It's a lazy film. That's why it didn't work. Anyway, anyway, so he gets kicked out of that. He is so weird. His only quote that we've got for his making this film is he's going to say, it preserves the tone and the visuals of the original whilst telling a more accessible story to Western audiences. 
I'm like, dude, it made like 50 million. In, like, <laughs> like, it's, it, trust me, it was accessible. By what, like, what that means is in English. That's all it means. In English. Yeah. That's all it and means. The weird history of it, and we'll, I'll keep going through it because this goes on forever. This is 20 years of them trying to make this fucking film. The, the, the overarching thing is they're obsessed with making this film in America and setting it in New York. They're obsessed with it. Like, and What do I want to call and, it, like, neo-New York? The whole point of it being set in Japan is so important it's to it. The whole, you yes. know, we've spoke about it. It's not just that. It's the kind of culture of the 70s yeah. as well, of Japan, like, and the kind of echoing the, the 1964 Olympics. It's all that stuff, like, based into it. And the fear, and the technocrat stuff, the fear of technology and stuff like that is all, like, an, a Japanese story. And, like, the whitewashing efforts they're taking just to make it about white people is just so ridiculous. What, what would they have done, like, Neo-New York then or something? Is that what they yeah. would have... Yeah, and... Uh, Tetsuro, it keeps being called Trevor in all the scripts. Trevor, oh no! I've never so Canada keeps scripts. the name. So, so scripts exist. Yeah, oh, yeah, these scripts exist. So in two thousand eight, you get um, uh, Robinson to come take over the Irish filmmaker, and uh, he was he was producing it with um, in with Legendary now. So Greg Silverman and Leonardo DiCaprio were producing. I knew, it. I knew Leonardo DiCaprio's name was involved somehow. I yeah. almost <laughs> think I almost I I have memories of Christopher Nolan's name being touted with it. Yes, as well, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coming. It's coming. Um, so, so in Leonardo DiCaprio's script, he didn't write it, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I want I want to be- pretend he did. I want to hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Manhattan becomes Japanese territory. <laughs> so oh, Manhattan becomes New Tokyo. <laughs> this doesn't, and so ten million Japanese people are living there, but it just happens to be located in the United States. This is the quote from the director. Um, he said he thought it'd be really interesting to fuse Eastern and Western cultures and allow a mix of actors from both, rather than just whitewashing. You're like you can set it in New Tokyo, Neo Tokyo, and have some white people in it if you want. <laughs> Like you don't need to set it in New if, York. It's if so Shang Chi has proven anything that they could do a film, they don't need to do this shit. Yeah, they can just have it set in Japan. <laughs> so, like, 2010 comes along, and you get Alan and Albert Hughes. Who welcome back to the podcast? Hang on, hang on. They're not the ones who did um... Dead Presidents. Yeah, and um, uh, From Hell. Going back to Alan Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Hell. Yeah, <laughs> probably they got it off the back of From Hell. Um, Which is weird because so, that film's not good either. Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, I know. But uh, they, you know, it's 2010 like production stuff. They adapted a comic book and it was okay. Like I think they were like, "Well, adapt to this." Like it's kind of like comic. I'm surprised <laughs> the um, Chowskis didn't get offered it. To be honest, I'm sure they would. They're sure they were, and I'm sure. Because I'm sure they even did today. a Batman script at some point, unless that was a yeah, fake probably. Thing. But anyway. So the screenwriters of that is um, Hawk Osby and Mark Fergus, who did Children of Men and Iron Man. Um, and they come on to rewrite that script that's set in Manhattan. Uh, God, their script back, still with the Manhattan. Their script gets overwritten by um, Albert Torres comes on to rewrite that. So this version of script, um, it's, it's not totally sure which one has come online, but the um, dynamics of the original story, they could become brothers rather than just friends. Um, right. The villains and threats become more explicit in the film, rather than it just being like about the kind of city. It heavily becomes about nine eleven. Oh, <laughs> like, okay. 
heavily becomes about 9-11 and Akira is portrayed as this murderous creepy psychic child straight out of like a horror film basically uh, who's a present throughout most of it and uh, it becomes really weirdly misogynistic about Kai and the female characters as well and they're tough of nails kind of characters and that film gets completely junked as well so then we get fucking this is insane then you get um, <laughs> uh, Run All Night I think the film's called so uh, uh, Colette Sarah uh, Hamu Hamey Hamey is that, I think you pronounce his name Colette no Sarah so in 2011 you will if I look it up again um, so uh, at that point you get Christopher Nolan's brother coming on Jonathan Nolan ah, okay, who yeah, comes on to write the script and you get and that along with um the screenwriter of Logan and Alien Covenant, uh, Michael Green, and he takes Colette Sarah's script. I didn't know the same person who wrote Logan is the same person that wrote Alien Covenant. That does not confuse <laughs> me because one is actually good and one is actually terrible. Hey, the writing's very different to what ends up on the screen. <laughs> That's, yeah, fair enough. But um, they also get the screenwriter for Harry Potter, uh, Stephen Clovens. Glo- gloves. Get, gloves. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but no one's really sure if Nolan Green or Clovens writes anything. Oh. <laughs> like they, but they know they're attached. But um, Colette Sarah is the only guy who's been outspoken about this, uh, who's the director, and he's fucking quotes. He goes like, "Nobody's interested in the uh, nobody is interested in the anime," um, which is uh, weird. Like basically, he's saying there's no main character. Like, and he goes, um. Tetsuo's interesting because weird shit happens to him and Canada is so two-dimensional he's boring but that's just part of Japanese culture they never have strong characters Ow. so we're going to have to change our <laughs> philosophy going forward it's like what the what? fuck dude <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> so every time some quote comes out it's just like it sounds like the worst thing happening do you know what I mean like, it sounds like someone taking over who has no appreciation of anything going on so basically um this is when they start getting accused of whitewashing because of Colette Sarah's uh, only now, <laughs> like only now, yeah, and because this kind of starts getting further into like casting. So oh, really? like, um, so Canada gets linked to Garrett Headland, Brad Pitt, Michael Fassbender, hang on, hang on, hang on, Reeves, hang on, hang on, Phoenix. Brad Pitt is who? Canada. Ha- no, two thousand ten. He was like. Forty-five, fifty. Then, <laughs> like, no, this. All of them are this. Like Brad Pitt, Michael Fassbender, Keanu Reeves, Whacking Phoenix, Chris Evans, Chris Pine, James Franco, Justin Timberlake, Zac Efron. <laughs> at least like, Zac Efron and and um, is, and uh, Franco are at least a bit younger. But like, but that, Ca- Canada's needs to be like seventeen. Yeah, I know. I it's know. fucking ridiculous, and they're all like um. They're all very white. <laughs> like, so in the script as well, you get um, Tetsuo, who's now called, in both, it's Trevor and Travis. He keeps getting called in these Travis, scripts. Yeah. Um, so you get Ezra Miller. So it's funny you mentioned him. Um, Toby Kebble, Alden Ererite, Rami Malik, James McAvoy, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which would be fucking brilliant. <laughs> Could you imagine? Michael Pitt, Paul Dano. <laughs> Paul Dano. <laughs> And Richard Madden. I would love to see Paul Madden. <laughs> Paul Dano as Tetsuo. <laughs> She's so good. If honestly, if this was like a bit later on, it would be the kid from uh, Chronicle in there. What's his name? Oh, what's his name? Yeah, sure. Dane DeHaan. 
You're Dane DeHaan, thank you. Well, I'll, tell you who, I'll tell you who it'd be it. now. It'd be the kid from uh, Green Knight. You know, the Irish lad who's also in uh, oh. Dunkirk. And, um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's who they would... That He'd be on the shortlist now, I guarantee you. He would be. And they've also decided to try and start casting Kai. Uh, so Kira Knightley, Kirsten Stewart, Mila Kunis. <laughs> <laughs> and this makes me laugh because this... So the Colonel, um, this is when they... The characters look to the colonel, Gary Oldman, Morgan Freeman, and Ken Watanabe. I love how Ken Watanabe's in it. They're like, oh, we could make the general Japanese. So how all to- people <laughs> who have been in Christopher Nolan films. <laughs> pretty- yes. It's because it's still linked to Warner Bros. Right. As well, because it's John Peters. So it's Warner Bros. trying to cast this, and they are just pulling out their, you know, their actors. And um, Helen Bonham Carter's been linked for supporting role, so I guess she's going to be the cult leader. Um, going to be again. This never got made. Uh, <laughs> Hang on, the but, girl, um, that, the girl that Canada likes. No, 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 no. The cult leader in the comic. Um, oh, okay, who I've forgotten her name, but like. Uh, um. So this is another quote from the director. I personally reject the argument that Akira is necessarily a Japanese story. That it's somehow sacrilegious <laughs> to set in a new adaptation of it anywhere else. I think many of the themes in that story are ones that speak to the human condition and are therefore relevant anywhere in the world. If that weren't true, the original versions would never have been hit outside Japan. And <laughs> what? You know what's really fucking irritating about that quote? You don't need to set it out of fucking Japan then if it's already got like global themes to it. Yeah. It's not improving it by setting it outside of Japan. It's not improving it by casting it with white people. It's still... It's going it, to... Oh, these people are stupid. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I still I think even even if they made a Japanese production of it, I still don't think you'd be very good. I think it's no, I, it's, no. it's perfect as it is, and it doesn't need you know tell a new story. So yeah. the last people to be linked to it, yeah, okay, um, there's more. This hasn't stopped. Uh, Justin Lin and Christopher Nolan, oh, um, they turned it down. Tommy Lee Edwards, who's the director of Book of Eli, was. I love the fact ages. that someone who was just went, "Do you want to do this?" and they're like, "Nah." I love how that becomes like a headline or like a, you know. And um, so David Sandberg, Daniel Espinosa, they both turned it down. Re- most recently is Jordan Peele. So after the back of like um, uh, Get Out, he was offered Acura, and he was offered a contract which was giant, like, and. I think it's the smartest movie he ever did. Uh, was yeah, I was going to say, down. yeah. Because like he's been able to just make films that he wants to make and not be linked into this fucking machine oh, of just adaptation. This film like, will be like the Ghost in the Ghost in the Shell one, which would it one it would just get so much backlash. Yeah, from fans. Two, like it would just be culturally insensitive, surely. It's a, it will somehow, be. and um, and it would just be. It'll be the budget will be that big that they'll get a director that they can kind of prod and poke around that they can kind of yeah in. yeah yeah and it just won't be anything it'll just be like oh here's a a live action Akira it won't be like the special it won't be given the special treatment that it deserves it's just it's just looking at money yeah. and I mean um to Taika Waititi's linked now he's still linked um it's not officially not happening. Uh, I mean, he is directing Thor: Love and Thunder. He's and his next project is he um, doing the Star Wars ne- one as well? Yeah, he's still linked to Star Wars. He's linked to Next Goal Wins. I think is his own production after Thor. I, so I don't think it's going to be on his no. docket. I think he's dropped it now. But he was the last person attached to it, and it's such. I mean, I don't. I do not think he'd be good director for this. Mm. Um, 
I don't think his style represents this at all. I think he I think he can be quite culturally insensitive, <laughs> if I'm very honest. I, I think Jojo is really insensitive in, in that cultural way, and I'm not sure he's the right person to be handed this. He's also he's also becoming uh quite diluted in people's enjoyment of him as well. I think Free Guy is really showing how much he's is started he to kind of Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about it before I found it was quite weird that he was Ratcatcher 2's father in, I, I was watching and I couldn't work out who it was and I don't know why it didn't click to me, with me straight away like, it was him and I was like what? then by the end when he was sitting on top of the I don't know some tower I was like oh fuck it's <laughs> it's Tucker with TT it's a shame because I used to like his older films and stuff like, I like you know, films yeah yeah and it, and I didn't like Jojo. But, I just yeah. don't know if he's become overexposed or whatever. He's just become a bit of a irritating figure now, and I don't. I, I yes, know that's probably yeah. unfair to say, but like I don't. I don't know what it is. I, I don't, don't know. know. And they've put him and Ryan Reynolds in the same film, and they've caused a, a <laughs> overload. <laughs> in it. I mean, who overexposed people? Who do you think could make a decent Akira live-action Akira, like James Wan or someone like that? I don't know. I have. I hate, no... I hate saying names like that because it's just obvious fucking answer. Yeah, but like, yeah. <laughs> but like, the, the only, only, the only the interesting only, one would be you pluck an indie person out from enjoying their, you know, their working in their own little pool, and you pull them out and thrust them in this big, huge corporate. Yeah. I think the only interesting monolith. way to go with an, an, a live action adaptation of Akira is pull someone out of Japanese animation. Um, yeah, or let Tashi to let Tashi come. What am I talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> what's his name? Otomo. Yeah, Otomo. Let yeah. him direct it. <laughs> he probably doesn't want it. He's like done. But having released overseer, I think the problem is that everyone's trying to make an ja- American version of this film, an American version of his live action film, and you can still do American money, but I think pull someone out of like Japanese animation and make it a, make it more relevant to today rather than making the eighties film, like. Um, make it more about globalization in that way or something like but you've set it in fucking Japan you know mm. that's where it's set and you and that's where the cultural themes are important from and we're all fucking we, we live on the internet we understand different people's fucking cultures and different people's ideas and, and, and then we understand things that cross over and speak to us more this is one of the things that spoke to everyone but you don't just fucking plop it in New York and put Brad Pitt as the lead character and think it's cool because there's a motorcycle. Like, it's just You ridiculous. know what they'd do? It'd be like the mall. They'll just do, even if it's set in Japan or wherever, it'll be shot in an, an Atlanta car park. Yeah, sure. And it'll just be green screen to hell. It won't be shot in Japan or anything like that. It'll just, it'll have no soul and it will just... I think, like, as well, my 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 overarching thoughts about this film is that it's flawed um yeah it is, and yeah. and but it stands like this and the manga stand as two individual things that are telling this story i don't think you have to compare them i think they both stand as two different tellings of this story and i actually think it's really fucking impressive how this film works how this film manages to get across all those fucking themes that are in that comic and that 2,000 fucking page runtime, they managed to get this into quite a coherent and quite a kind of emotionally affecting movie that works. It has something to say, you know? And nothing about putting it in live action is going to do anything better. 
There's nothing more you could do that this film does. Like, you'll just mess it up because it's a complicated story. And I think the only thing you could do is put is serialise it. I think the only way to do anything that's actually worth doing is just serialising it. I think watching this as a kid, like as a 10 year old probably did a disservice for me for this film because and then I just mm. watched it because it was cool to look at so I never <laughs> properly paid attention to what the story was because it like you said it does actually if you if you watch it properly you can grasp what the story is and stuff I wouldn't yeah. say it's the best at explaining itself like it does lots of exposition bits so like there's a bit with uh, the girl in the prison and then sure, the kind sure, of the young sure. child, well, the old child, whatever you want to call it, kind of speaks through. Her. I don't think they're meant to look old. I, I was thinking that. Well, as well. no, I, I think, think they're because look- they're meant to be children, they're meant to. Be, I, they're, I assume somehow they're kept young, so they don't ever get like the wants and needs of an adult, mm. so that their powers become a problem. I think, and so I, they're, I they're, they're they're, but look- they still age, so they're like old-looking children. No, I think they're meant to look drained. I think that's what they're meant Is to that be what like. They're meant to be? like like, like they're kind of pulled of all their kind of energy that that because they're so psychic, basically, that kind of physical energy is being drained out of them because it's being taken up with this psychic energy. See, I, I don't know. Like, I took it that they I was were... like, I always thought of them as looking like tiny old people, but when I was rewatching it this time, I think it's not meant to be they look old. I think they're meant to look kind of well, I just drained is the best way I could put it. I just took it like I just said that they were somehow kept young. Like they're mm. in, they're like they're in those chambers, aren't they? So I don't know if those chambers are meant to keep them like. Preserve I think it's them. because they're no, it's to help them move around. Oh, is that what it they're is? Because they're so weak physically, yeah. yeah, frail and stuff. Well, the one can kind of run around. Yeah, one of them can. The others can't. The one who looks a bit like Frankenstein or whatever. <laughs> it does a little bit. So should we try and? I mean, we've blabbed on for ages, but we may as well. I was going to say, we had two hours to be honest. Just, we can probably just summarise the plot in like 10 minutes, kind of. I guess, uh, to be honest, is, is there anything, any scenes that we haven't talked about, I think is the best part to say. Like, because obviously the beginning of the film is this brilliant motorcycle chase. Yeah, between um, two rival gangs. Between two gangs. You've got the clown gang, I think they're called, and like, uh, and Canada's own gang. And, um,. And that kind of fight that is incredibly brutal. It starts out like these kids whacking these people in the face with like like crowbars and stuff like that. Like uh, that leads into uh, Takashi crash- crashing into one of these, you know, old, old, tiny people. <laughs> yeah. So it's worth <laughs> noting that I think the resistance, if they've somehow managed to capture one, haven't they? Or like, or they, is that right? He's just escaped. He's escaped. Yeah, the, he's but escaped, the, and the um the the forces are kind of after him. The military forces. But the resistance have back, kind yeah. of somehow got him, haven't they? The resistance know it exists. Yeah. But that, like, and and it, so by crashing into this like old child or whatever, he it's awakened his abilities. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So he's kind of got telekinesis abilities. But it's I think it's worth going back to the it's worth going from the end of the film to kind of explain what happens at the in the <laughs> film. So the end of the film you find out in 1988 there's like a bunch of kids they're in like a a research facility aren't they to kind of uh for children with like telekinetic powers and stuff like that. Is that right? And then yeah. I'm guessing the one just couldn't contain their powers. Akira is like the most, yeah, um, yeah powerful, powerful thing that ever existed. Yeah, and he, but based... also 
also um, malevolent as well. Yes. I think that's the important thing to know. But he, he looks just like a little innocent <laughs> boy. He doesn't, he doesn't look... Yeah. But like, so he basically causes what they what the public believe to be like a nuclear attack or whatever yeah but it's actually him and um and it starts world war three yeah right yeah and then yep. they somehow kill him and then they kind of dissect him and kind of try to figure out i don't know or just learn more about him i guess mm-hmm. then they kind of put his body into some cryogenic kind of chamber that's under the it's under the olympic stadium yeah yeah. cut to what 30 years later when uh tetsuo crashes into this boy and then he's taken away by the what the military i guess to the same facility that akira and these other children are at and then he's kind of tested on on then that's right yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can carry on. You, you... I enjoy. No, I know. I like Ollie. Ollie trying to <laughs> trying to figure it out. Yeah, um, but it's it's like when I was a kid. Like I remember Canada being like a massive deal to me. But he, You're right? He, like he's just like a punk kid that just kind of doesn't really know what's going on half the time. He's only yeah. in, he's only involved, even though Tetsuo is his friend that he was like in a a, a home for like you know. Uh, they grew up with together, yeah. Yeah, like in a it's kind like of orphans, like yeah. an orphanage, yeah. And he kind of stuck up for him a bit, I think, because he was like a bit of a bit weak. But then I think Tetsuo kind of starts to take umbrage against that, and he kind of wants to be able to stand up for himself, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that's the key to this. Is yeah. what, what Canada is actually quite um, forthright yeah. and, and kind of forceful in himself, and the how shit this world is, you know, the abuse from other people and like authority figures. It toughens Canada up to be to be able to fight back, but um, Tetsuro is complete opposite. He isn't toughened by this; he's broken by it. And whilst Canada wants to run the bike gang, Tetsuro wants to leave the city. You know, he wants to take his girlfriend and escape, mm-hmm. and they want to just get away from everything. But this like awakening of power in Tetsuro, instead of like making him feel more. It's like uh, instead of making him feel like more self-assured that he's now got these powers, what it actually does is make him vengeful and angry and want and that pain that he was bottling up for all the years of him being bullied and this world breaking him down and everyone kind of shitting on him explodes in anger that he wants to take out on the people around him. I think that's the key little stories of playing between them two in the film. Right? That's why you get in the film of Katsuo. We haven't even said it yet, but um, Canada and Tetsuro yelling at each other. Tetsuo! Canada! Because you actually, they be, like, Tetsuo kind of becomes a sympathetic character as it goes on as well. Yeah. With Canada actually trying to save him. I don't know what he thinks he's going to save him, how he's going to save him. Did, have, you ever, have you ever listened to the, the dub version? Yeah, I actually watched both this summer. So I think there's two this dubs. Week. I think there's two British there are, English there dubs. Are. The, the I one I remember as a kid on that I had on VHS, it had the voice of Leonardo as Canada from the Ninja Turtles. Really? That was always confusing. But And I think that kind of almost <laughs> altered the plot a bit. Probably. And then there's, normally do. And then there's a more recent dub as well, which I haven't listened to. I've only, I, anytime I watch it, I watch it in Japanese. Yeah, I watched the um, subs first, but then I did watch the dub as well. 
Um, to be fair, every time I, any time I watch a dub of anything, I actually put the subtitles on as well, which can be quite confusing because you get English saying different things. But I find it interesting to compare because I can never remember lines. Right. And uh, at the 2001 dub, I actually think is quite good. I don't think you're missing much right. from it. I think it's quite faithful. Obviously, there's decisions that are making made in dubbing. Um, and decisions that are made in dubbing is basically they'll change lines to make them sound a little better when spoken out loud, but also to fit in the kind of scenes that are, that exist as well. Well, I guess so as well, if there's a like, word that doesn't really have an English translation, they'll find the nearest yeah, exactly. thing. Yeah, exactly. But even like someone could be saying thank you in a very in a way in, in Japanese that's extended and it means something particular. There's something at the end of this film when um, uh, Tetsu starts referring to himself um, using a different formality uh, to mean I and to Japanese audiences that makes a different change to what he's saying the English line can just be I am Tetsuo but this, but if you understand the kind of the language behind it it means something a bit different okay. I can't go into it because I don't understand Japanese but like there's stuff, little stuff like that that you just can't replicate in dubs or subs Like, and I think sometimes in dubs as well what you need to do is match the length that people are talking for because what you don't want is the flow of the film to be interrupted too much so if a scene is on a person talking whatever you say has to fit the same amount of length <laughs> even if it's shorter or longer it can't be shorter because then you just got this quiet scene of two people staring at each other like um and a weird hanging angles that will make everything feel awkward so i think sometimes that's where even with the best intents that's where dubs go wild because they have to they have to try and do this balancing act really but from every dub I've ever seen I think the 2001 is okay it's I never say that it, I just watch the dub it's perfect but I want to see the Spanish version okay. with the cast of uh, Woman on the Verge of a Nervous <laughs> Breakdown too <laughs> that's amazing um, so anyway back to the plot so so Tetsu is taken to this facility where um, the other children are kept so they're doing some tests on him he manages to escape, is that right? And then he steals yes. Canada's bike, which he's you see earlier on he's kind of like he's interested in it and stuff like that. Yeah. Like figuring out how it works and stuff. And so yeah, like you said, he takes his girlfriend, he tries to escape the city. But then the clown bike gang, I think, they kind of they catch him or see him. So they kind of chase him down. Canada and like the other gang members, they manage to find him. Find find Tetsuo and the other gang members and like kind of so, well, they save him basically from getting killed, or no? They they're going to set fire to the bike, aren't they? Mm, mm. Yeah, and then the the one questionable thing that I don't think they should have done is where they rip the clothes off the young girl because I'm sure I'm sure she's only you know she looks twelve, sure, and it just feels sure. a bit and it just feels a bit icky, icky, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but then Tetsu is then taken away again by the military. Yes. Yeah. And then I'm trying to think what happens after that. Is that when Canada then kind of gets involved with the... Because he's, he's already seen the girl before, hasn't he, from the Resistance? Yes. Yeah, because he helps her escape from prison, or not prison, or being questioned by the police or whatever. Yeah. So it's Kyoko. Kyoko, yeah. 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 Um, I do like that sequence, though, where he's... Because kind of, <laughs> he kind of, like, tells everybody that he's, like, her girlfriend and stuff like that, which is very... <laughs> 
wishful thinking on his behalf. Um, <laughs> but you also, as well, you find out like the relations with the military, with the government, and then also yeah. like the mayor. The mayor is he. The way they draw the mayor is so weird. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah. Like compared to it's how so everyone odd. else looks. I, yeah. When I when I was younger, I thought he was like the older children or whatever. Okay, yeah. Because he's kind of got the same kind of colour to him and stuff like that. It's... I don't think he is, but the the, the comic does have more espers. Right, uh, More okay. people who have been, um, like, uh, tested on by the military. One of them is this person I keep referring to, the leader of the cult. She's an ah, esper. Ah, okay, got you. And she ends up... Ba- basically, the last fight is between her and Tetsuo, really. Uh, does she look like a child then or not? No, not no. really, no. Okay, but then you've also got the kind of religious aspect to it because you find out that people yeah. kind of like even though Akira was never like like we said earlier they said it was a nuclear attack but there's like rumblings that Akira was a thing and they think it's like a deity or something like that is that right Yeah I think it's because what's happening is the remains of Akira the physical presence of him is so so, so strong that it's kind of still reaching out to people in the city so I think I think when you're hearing in in their heads, you're hearing people yell Akira is is actually Akira accurate, like yelling that out in like the kind of psychic remains and stuff. Right. So it's like there's like this ghost haunting it, like this kind of very powerful psychic ghost haunting the city of New Tokyo. So what's the mayor doing? Because he's using both to kind of for his own advantage, isn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, So back at the hospital, like, so the kids are kind of scared of. Of the kids know that Tetsu is a maniac and well, very be- powerful. Well, because yeah. he's older, isn't he? So he's kind of got adult urges and stuff like that. So he's kind of sure. so he'll use his powers for his own gain, basically. Yes. So why did why did they attack him as with the teddy bears and stuff like that? Was that just to? I think they. I think what they start to try and do is calm him. They're trying, they're, trying to play, they're just trying to play with and him trying to play with him. Right. Okay. And he immediately is so scary and aggressive to them think that he that's thinks it's when they threat. try and kill him right okay yeah because then during that as well canada and the other girl they're trying to break into the yeah they're trying to the, get tetsuo back yeah yeah what are they trying are they trying to get to akira as well or not or, or are they trying to find out where akira is kept i think it's more tetsuo they're obsessed with rather than akira right because because the, the the young old girl kind of starts to channel through the girl doesn't she yeah, yeah, yeah. So the girl, um, uh, Kyoko... Like a conduit or something for... Well, she she's an esper as well. Oh, is she? Okay. Yeah, but she's like latent, basically. And um, the older girl, the older kind of girl who leaves, le- leads those three espers, they um, they recognise that in her and think they can use her to fight Tetsuo. Ah. So they start kind of possessing her. Ah, yeah, that's right. Because like, I always forget about this action scene where like the cha- it's like a speeder bike chase from Star Wars, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where they're trying to get to Tetsuo in this massive kind of underground layer. um, But it's actually really well animated, and I just, for some reason, I always forget about that sequence. It kind of gets um, overshadowed by the rest of the film. Yeah, and um, so, yeah, they kind of, they find Tetsuo, who kind of, he kind of leaves them for dead, doesn't he? Kind of like he attacks them all and leaves everyone for dead. And then what happens after that? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he a, believes te- he he keeps hearing the word Akira, doesn't he, in his head? Yeah. So he goes trying to find Akira because he thinks that's going to be the route to his to finding out what's going on with him or something. Because he yeah, doesn't realise Akira is like in fragments. 
in charge. Yeah, he doesn't realize Kira's dead. Yeah, yeah. Whereas obviously in the comic he's not. Right, okay, <laughs> the big you. difference. Is he still kept underground though, or anything? Is yeah. He still, so he's yeah, still, he's still locked kept away. Under the Olympic Stadium. Yeah. Okay, got you. And then, um, what happens after that? So then, this is where Tetsuo starts. Like he, he gets the cape and everything like that, and he's trying to make his way towards the stadium. Yes. He's like following. Yeah. And you got. So you also get like the coup, det- the coup happening at the same time. Yeah. Then against the government. And you, then you get the cultists kind of getting obsessed with... Um, they they think that um, Tetsuo is Akira and um, they start following him, basically. Because you've got that scientist character as well because he kind of... Does he kind of prod Tetsuo a bit to kind of awaken his things a bit earlier or something? Yeah, the scientist is massively just like... Um, like almost like... It's like... It's like the scientist inventing the A bomb. It's like he he wants yeah. to know what happens if you do this. You know, yeah, he, he wants to know how much there. powerful yeah. power there can be, and like doesn't really think about consequences. Because then he has another. Sh- he has a showdown with. Well, he kills loads of. Well, no, he brings down loads of the bridge, doesn't he, or something towards yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. stadium, killing loads of people. I think he, I think he meets Canada there as well, and like, does he think he kills Canada again, or does Canada drive away? I've, I've, I'm blanking. Canada starts attacking him. Yeah. yeah. But um Because he then, gets a laser gun then, at this point, doesn't he? Then Kai comes up and they start fighting as well. Yeah. Um and she kind of defeats Kai and then that's when he finds out Kira's just like a bunch of jars. <laughs> <laughs> and then Canada starts fighting, comes with his laser rifle. Um and starts shooting Tetsuo with his laser rifle. That that bike he's got defies gravity though. I love it. <laughs> And um, that's when uh, the colonel who staged the coup, he starts attacking him with the orbital. Yeah, weapons, that's an amazing orbital. bit, that, isn't it? Like, yeah. And it like basically chops off his arm. Yes. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I love that. And, um, I love the fact that, because like, obviously he then attacks the satellites. He goes into yes. space. But I love the fact that the shit comes out of like his exposed kind of wound. They're like that's his like weak point, so that's where all the kind of the sinewy kind of blobby stuff starts coming out. Yeah, and yeah. Then the like because he he forms a metallic arm, like a robot arm, doesn't he? Yes. And then it just goes to shit after that. <laughs> and then you get kind of um, Kaori restrains Tetsuo at that point, and the the kind of the the colonels like offering to kind of just heal him and control him, and they'll go back, but um. Canada arrives and they start fighting again. So you and think then, it's Canada's um, fault then that this all escalates? Or do you think they could have calmed it down? Or do you think it would have I just happened anyway? I don't think there's any calming Tetsu at this point. Because <laughs> like, this is when he starts mutating, isn't it? Like, yeah. and He starts engulfing. And, like, um, I can't even explain how good the animation is, the morphing. <laughs> like, Because like, I love body horror stuff anyway. Like We were talking sure. about like with... Um, altered states where I was like saying oh I wish it just went a bit further this is what I mean when it I want it to go further like the kind of just the grotesque nature of this like cancerous blobby growth that just grows from (laughs) his arm and just (laughs) takes over his whole body it's amazing but like you kind of get sympathetic towards him then though because he obviously wants to kind of he wants help then doesn't he (laughs) the last minute possible yeah 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 
Um, and that's when the kind of espers arrive and Akira is kind of a latent psychic power. That's when, as you said earlier, they kind of create a new dimension for him to live in um, and for the espers to live in and stuff like that. And and they transfer um, Canada back to Neo Tokyo. Yeah. It's worth, but like Tetsuo ends up killing his girlfriend, doesn't he? Like, mm-hmm. and then like mm-hmm. Canada's yeah. all, like basically crushing her from inside of him, and then Canada's almost yeah. about to go as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, such oh, that this film is so good, <laughs> so good, so so good. Um, yeah, so what would you give it out of five then? Um. Kind of difficult. I think I gave it four and a half on Letterbox. Um, I could, I could be talked into four. I could be talked into five, but it's not a perfect film. Like even when you're talking through the, um, as you say, it's like, it's like a, um, it's, it's like they took the larger story and made the best they could out of it. I think. Right. And the elements of the larger story that exist are just too tantalizing and not fully formed in it and like it's it's admirable that they managed to tell a story that's so well-rounded i think um but i but because of that there's things like you know you going what the fuck's the mayor doing that's not really ever explored <laughs> the themes of the religious stuff aren't really ever explored i think akira as a character isn't ever really is quite lacking and you don't really understand the pain and the weapon and the power and everything else, I think, and in in Akira because of that. And I think, like, I think because of that, there's just stuff in it that's not totally there, which you kind of forgive sometimes when you're reading. But I've watched it so many times that I've, I, it just made me want to read the comic, basically. Well, so I, I think that's why I say four and a half. It's, it's so admirable that it exists and it's so spectacularly animated. Um, but it's, it is slightly flawed, I think. I mean, I think it's a it's a five for me. Um, like I've never read the comic book, so I can't really speak to like the, I can't be upset about what's not there and what isn't there. Oh yeah, 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 totally, um, yeah. And like like you were saying about the you know the mayor and all that stuff, and I just think that adds it's just almost world building. It's just it's there to kind of yes, enriching a bit sure. more. So I'm I'm fine with what's there to be honest. Um, to be honest, like. It doesn't need to be there, but I think like it just enriches it just that little bit and just kind of makes it feel a bit more lived in. Um, That's fair. And the animation is just like, like I said, like it's weird that I'm not a massive anime fan. I'm a fan of an- all animation, to be honest, but like <laughs> I don't delve deep into like, you know, I what you know, I, I'm a big fan of like the the big main anime stuff, but I don't really seek it out like I do other animation stuff. Other but, stuff, yeah. yeah. But um, I think I think. When I've shown you anime, it's the the stuff that becomes the kind of what anime becomes the otaku culture stuff is the stuff you don't get on board with. Yeah, um, I like paprika I you, and stuff like that, and you know, yeah, things like that are great. And um, if I show you perfect, you know, if I show you Ghost in the Shell, or if yeah, you yeah. know, or or Cowboy Bebop, that's the kind of stuff you're gonna really like. Um, but the kind of the other anime stuff is just you tire of it, maybe. It's just. <laughs> Big eyes, big head, things like things like that. Like <laughs> yeah. I never, I never got on board with like Dragon Ball and stuff like that. I remember going around yeah. to yours and and it was just literally two guys in the air going ah, and you were <laughs> like, and you were so like ah, oh, and you had to explain to me ah, oh, the reason why they're doing this is because they've got ahead of the comic book, so they're just doing filler episodes for now. They're just charging, they're just charging up. 
I'm like, okay, cool, awesome. I have to, I have to say, I rewatched the release of Dragon Ball because they recut Dragon Ball Z. Uh, they cut it as uh, Dragon Ball Z Kai, it's called, and they oh, basically heard recut of, the whole thing. I've heard about it, and um, and I rewatched it in a kind of morbid curiosity, like that. That was, I loved that so much when I was young, and I was like, it can't be good. And I rewatched it, and quite honestly, the story from the first bit to the end of the Freezer saga. Um, is one of the best storytelling things I think anyone's ever done. I might, I might like, have to check it out. Stuff. I might have to check it out. It's, and it, it's hard because it's long. Many episodes, like they're only 20 minutes and there's a lot of them. But just the character growth that was actually happening when this was being made. No one was doing this with serialised stuff when this was getting made, you know? No one was doing this kind of character growth and change and stuff in serialised cartoons, serialised animation. like. And I think even, I think it doesn't get enough respect, I think, because of what it became in people's minds. I, I um, will see your Dragon Ball Z and raise you mysterious cities of gold. <laughs> That's mysterious. This gold is good. It's good, but like, I, I, I stand by stuff like the the Vegeta story and Freezer story, and the fact that's all there in the first part of the series, and then comes to fruition, and then even past that, the Cell stuff is really cool. And I won't say it's the best thing ever made. It's quite cheesy. It's you know, it's and it's made for kids. Like, and I loved it then, but I think it's it's it should have its rightful place when we talk about serialized animation. Like, it like I'm just saying, Avatar wasn't the first first people to do it <laughs> like going back and to, i love avatar <laughs> going back to akira though like i i definitely find it hard to take away my nostalgia from it as well like, like i said oh, it, yeah. i just saw it such a kind of the perfect time in my life to watch something like this like it just it just totally blew my mind and i just can't take that image away from it it's always embedded in there like in my history and my dna um, did I you ever? That's what say- I wanted to get across as well. Actually, is the fact that, like, I think for our generation and maybe a bit older than us as well, uh, it was such a formative movie. Yeah, uh, it was so different and weird and new that, like, it, it just will never be beaten in that kind of mind space, that nostalgia I mean- space. I'm not sure if I showed someone who was 12 now or 15 now, it would have the same effect. I'm just not sure it would do that. I reckon to a cin- to a cinephile, I think a cinephile would get a lot out of it. Do you know what I mean? Maybe. Like a, a pure a person who likes film. I actually met someone the other day who doesn't like Jaws either, and who claims to be a cinephile. <laughs> and I just I'm, anyway, that's neither here. Nor I'd be there. really interested in showing it to like like a Gen Z person who loves anime who hasn't seen it and I bet tons of them haven't seen it because it, as I was trying to like get across, it really does just fallen out of that pop culture kind of stuff fallen out of favour I'd be really interested in showing it to someone and seeing what they they think of it I want um, my Akira toys that's what I want <laughs> um, I want a big plush toys. mutant baby a big plush mutant baby yeah, yeah totally <laughs> um, but did you ever see they, tried, they were going to make a Super Nintendo game of it and, um, I did not know that. And it was shown at E3, like, in 94, 95. You can look it up on YouTube. And it actually had, even on the Super Nintendo, it had, like, full-motion video clips in it and stuff like that. And I think oh. it was, like, a side-scroller. And, yeah, it, look, it looked ace. But it never it never came to fruition, which is a shame. Never came out. Weird. But anyway, I think we talked anyway. enough of Kira. <laughs> Yeah, this might end up being our longest episode. <laughs> it's a damn good film. It's in my top 20 of all time. So, Is it? That's awesome. Yeah, I love that it. That is awesome. 
and it's just so much fun talking about animation like and i can't get across it more that the animation this is probably some of the best animations ever been done it Look, just it, is so spectacular it, it's that good it was in my top 20 and i didn't understand it fully until when i properly sat down <laughs> to watch it the other day so there you go it's the things music videos are made of that's why so um what are we talking about next time what's what's on the docket i think we're going to do well, some that's... horror films or something yeah i think gonna... we'll do some horror f- i think october is going to be um adjust your tracking horror month um yeah whatever type of horror pun you want to use for that <laughs> <laughs> spooktacular is that a good one i'm not okay. sure what we're going to do because obviously you're you're house hunting at the moment yeah it's all a bit um, in flux isn't it yeah so i think don't know. I don't know what we're going to do yet, but James is going to be involved somehow. So it might be me and James, or it might be me, James, and Liam. We're not sure what's yeah. what's going to go yet. But like, um, we've got next coming up. We've got the episode with Brandon where we're going to talk about our favourites yeah, we'll from our eighties miniseries. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, yeah. We'll do some. We'll do some horror films throughout October. Don't know how many there will be, but we'll do some October, and then we'll be back in November to do the nineteen thirties. I think like. And the 1930s is going to be fucking weird, isn't it? Compared to watching Akira. <laughs> Are there any 1930s anime? I'm sure we can find something. There's got to be something. Oh my god. 30s I don't Japanese. Know. Yeah, but that's awesome. Thanks for letting me uh, watch Akira. It's always, it's always a good time <laughs> to watch Akira. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever you listen to us on. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We are at AdjustYourTrack. That's with a Y-R, not a Y-R. And don't forget, if the picture's bad, always adjust your tracking. <laughs>